Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. Hello, my name is Dr. John Robinson, and this is a recording for the LDN Research Trust and the 27 conference, 2017 conference. Uh, my talk today is on thyroid disease, optimizing metabolism through comprehensive hormonal treatment. Uh, again, I'm Dr. John Robinson from the Hormone Zone. I'm a naturopathic physician and I practice in Scottsdale, Arizona. So this particular talk will focus on thyroid disease and specifically through the lens of optimizing metabolism um, and looking at uh, the idea of thyroid hormone uh, influences on the body as it relates to metabolism and vice versa and then how we can take that whole idea and put it together as a comprehensive approach towards endocrinology and other hormone systems. So I want to let everyone know right off the bat that this is an overview. I'm going to go through um, several systems and a lot of different kind of hormone approaches um, about what we specifically do and how that then will relate back to thyroid hormone and thyroid comprehensive treatment. But again, it's, a, it's an overview. Um, and I do have several uh, references throughout this presentation, um, but it's not copious and uh, certainly... Uh, it's not every kind of reference you would want or need with everything that I'm saying. With that said, um, I ask you to go to the Hormone Handbook by Dr. Terry Hurtaw, which I think is an excellent uh, resource, and uh, many of the things that I've learned over the years has been through his work as well. Um, so that would be just a great reference point for you. So moving on. Again, we want to focus on comprehension. Uh, we certainly believe uh, at uh, the Hormone Zone and what we focus on and what I've just learned over 11 years of practicing uh, natural bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, thyroid hormone, uh, focus, adrenal, etc. What we've learned over this time is that we really do need to step back and look at it comprehensively versus just myopically at one system at one time. Um, so that's really the, the other underlying concept of what we're talking about here today. Um, is this comprehension. And so here are the systems that we'll go through today, and this is the big part of what I mean when I'm talking about comprehensive hormone replacement therapy um, goals. So we're looking at these five key systems that many of us, of course, are aware of. Um, so along with sex hormones and insulin and digestion, looking at thyroid hormone, of course, adrenal hormones and growth hormone, we have some other systems and other concepts in and around that that create and establish this comprehension. So detoxification would be one, looking at the sexuality of the patient and are they optimized in their own sexual health. Definitely what's going on with the immune system. That is certainly pertinent to uh, the LDN conference and what we do with LDN. Um, behavioral and social implications of hormone and how hormone influences behavior and, and, and social uh, uh, outcomes and social influences and then vice versa. And then musculoskeletal, of course, pain, neurological implications. This would be 
in and around perhaps growth hormone as well, pituitary brain function, and then definitely mitochondrial function. Again, um, we look at things in a comprehensive way as it relates to mitochondrial and metabolism function. Um, and I think mitochondrial function has um, been very exciting here in the past maybe even five years. There's been so much more going on with that and the clinical view of mitochondria. I think it's been very exciting. Um, and this is just something that we've looked at um, with our perspective for thyroid hormone really for the past decade. Um, so I think it's um, really, really pertinent what we're talking about here today. So I, for the, I guess for sounding redundant, uh, but again, the clinical perspective is metabolic health, um, energy, metabolism, and viewing health from that perspective. Certainly, uh, mitochondrial function and metabolism is one of the theories of aging, um, and we look and consider it from that perspective as well. Um, but certainly when it comes to thyroid hormone, and as we'll see, um, thyroid hormone is affecting metabolism really second to none. And in fact, the word metabolism comes from the word metabole, which means to change. It's about this full change in the system. Um, and it has everything and anything to do with energy and metabolism. So when we're getting into thyroid and talking about that, I'd like to just kind of go through some of the things that we focus on uh, with thyroid hormone treatment. And what we've observed over the years is to be um, really the two largest problems. There's many problems. Um, but if I could just narrow it down into two things um, that I think um, really is at the core of why so many patients suffer, why so many patients um, needlessly suffer and don't get the relief uh, that they're wanting, needing, and certainly deserve. Um, the first problem, as I see it, is most of the time patients are on the wrong type of thyroid hormone. This tends to be um, synthetic level thyroxine. It is a T4 only monotherapy approach. Now I also put on here that it is maybe the wrong type of thyroid hormone. And I say that as the caveat that the right type of thyroid hormone for an individual patient is the one that works. And it very well could be uh, T4 only therapy. Sometimes patients can't handle the active form of thyroid hormone, uh, which is T3. And so they may need T4, um, and this is certainly true, but the massive majority of patients really just do better on something that isn't just singular T4-only monotherapy. One of the issues, of course, is conversion issues. We don't necessarily convert uh, from T4 to T3 uh, in some patients very efficiently, even if they are replete with um, minerals and all the things that they need in order to convert adrenals are balanced, et cetera, they still might not convert very well. And in some patients, it actually can become toxic. And why do we see this as the number one um, prescribed medications? Because, it, or, or why is it always T4? Because it's the number one prescribed medication in the United States. It is a billion dollar medication, Synthroid, and just even the generic level thyroxine, the Voxel, these others um, are, are just really big money involved in that. And so we just see we tend to see patients coming in just on this type of therapy, and most of the time it's missing the mark. So what would potentially be the right type of thyroid hormone for a given patient? Um, uh, I, I tend to believe it is natural desiccated thyroid hormone. Um, Nature thyroid is being one example, armor being another. And so this is a, a product that contains 
um, active T3. But like I said in the previous slide, again, maybe this is the right type of thyroid hormone for them. Um, and, and I do believe it is for the majority of people, but it isn't always. Um, and so we have to serve the patient in front of us, of course. Um, but again, uh, generally speaking, uh, and not even generally, I mean, just really uh, the 80, 90% of patients are going to do really, really well on this type of thyroid hormone and have no issues with it whatsoever. And in fact, they'll flourish on it. And the great thing about natural desiccated thyroid hormone is that it contains T4, the active thyroid hormone T3. It even contains small amounts of T2, T1, technically T0, thyroglobulin, calcitonin. It is a complete product that contains all the aspects and fractions of what would be in a thyroid at any given time. It is natural and desiccated, meaning it's dried and it is normally um, a porcine or pig source. And um, most patients, again, do really well on it. Now, why don't most patients get prescribed this? One of the biggest reasons is that uh, there is this belief that it isn't consistent, that um, there are problems with the amount of thyroid hormone that would be present in a given pill. And this is massively overinflated. Um, there's been one, maybe two recalls of armor uh, over the years, and that's a prescription that's been around in, uh, I don't know, about the 1920s. Um, Nature Throid, um, that's made up by RLC Labs, uh, the best of my knowledge, has never had a recall for inconsistency of their batches. Now, Synthroid and others have had several um, um, batch recalls for inc inconsistency. So we can't necessarily say it's that. The, so the, the, other, the other argument is that the amount of T4 and T3 that is present in natural desiccated thyroid is not physiologic to what is found in the blood. And so what I'm going to do, I'm just going to read a uh, small little excerpt from uh, my first book called The Hormone Zone, where I talked quite a bit about thyroid hormone and um, everything that I'm talking about here, where I got the information from was um, a classic um, textbook, Werner Ingbar's Thyroid. Um, so let me just read that now. Hopefully that will start to make a little bit of sense for everyone. The common argument against the use of desiccated thyroid hormones such as nature thyroid is that the ratio of T4 to T3 of 4 to 1 within the medication is not physiologic for a human being. The opposition explains that humans have serum blood concentration ratios of T4 to T3 of 85.8 micrograms and T4 uh, to about 1.3 micrograms of T3 or 65 to 1. So this illustrates in their minds why T3 and desiccated thyroid hormones should not be used for hypothyroidism because the ratio of 65 to 1 uh, in the blood is nowhere near to the ratio of about 4 to 1 T4 to T3 that's found in natural desiccated thyroid. Now, there are two facts regarding thyroid hormone physiology that they continue to ignore, even in the journals. One, production rates, production rates of T4 from the thyroid gland are about 130 nanomolars per day per 70 kilograms of body weight. This equates exactly to 101.4 micrograms and T3 is 48 nanomolars per day per 70 kilograms, which equates to 31.2 micrograms. 
This is a ratio of T4 to T3 of 3.25 to 1, far closer to the 4 to 1 ratio found in desiccated thyroid hormone. Now the second issue, too, would be the clearance rate of T3 from the blood is approximately 20 times more rapid than T4, which means that T3, the active form of thyroid hormone, will often be lower in the blood than T4 because it's busy doing its job at the cellular level. Again, this is from the Hormone Zone Navigate Metabolism Towards Whole Health Transformation 2011. So that's the first problem, perhaps, that we're not getting enough of it, and that's some of the details, uh, excuse me, that we're on the wrong type, and that's some of the details, perhaps, why we aren't on the right uh, type. Now, number two would be not enough thyroid medication. So even if someone gets on natural desiccated thyroid hormone, Perhaps they go to uh, an alternative medicine practitioner, some functional medicine doctor that's open to giving them natural desiccated thyroid, perhaps in the form of nature thyroid. Why won't they uh, get the benefit from that? Because I've seen that many times. Patients come in and say, well, yes, I've already been on that, but uh, you know, it, didn't, it didn't do anything. It didn't make any difference. And that's often because of the second issue. They didn't get enough of that thyroid hormone medication. And so why is that? Now, one of the biggest reasons that we just simplistically say, narrow it down, it would just simply be because of the uh, obsession of focusing on the TSH test, thyroid-stimulating hormone blood assay. Uh, we like to say that the TSH stands for too slow to help. So the, the focus is just simply looking at the TSH and regulating that. And honestly, that's maybe one, one and a half a grain, one, one and a half grains very small amounts, 30 to you know, maybe 90 milligrams of natural desiccated thyroid hormone to regulate the TSH without suppression, without making it look like hyperthyroidism on the labs. It's very relatively small end amounts uh, that often don't provide the metabolic relief for that patient to where they have symptomatic relief and, uh, of their, uh, and sign relief as well. So the point would be to bring up the thyroid hormone to the point where signs and symptoms are relieved. And again, if you're focused just on the TSH, you're not going to be able to do that. And then maybe perhaps even after that, we would say, well, we want to look at T4 and T3 and free T3. And those things are important too. And I would say that they're better at assessing the situation than just the TSH. But even then, that doesn't necessarily let us know is there too much or not enough thyroid hormone present in the system to stimulate the cells? And that's really what metabolism is all about, what's happening at the cellular level. And TSH is not going to necessarily let us know that. But we've got uh, ways that we look at it differently in order to determine what's going on with the metabolism at the cellular level. One way is to look at Waltman's sign. Now, Waltman's sign, this has been around, oh about a hundred years and this would this is just simply looking at the relaxation phase of a given deep tendon reflex classically it would be the Achilles tendon but technically it can be any deep tendon reflex so the thyroflex um, is a machine that um, through you know computer-aided technology we can see the reflex speed in its relaxation phase to the millisecond we can measure it to the millisecond that's classically been the issue with 
Waltman sign that uh, after someone gets on thyroid hormone, I've certainly seen this, uh, once somebody gets on even smaller amounts, uh, ends of thyroid hormone and then you're looking at the relaxation phase, it, it, it normally corrects pretty quickly and then you can't tell the subtleties of one grain versus one and a half grain versus two grain. You can't see it with the naked eye. But the Thyroflex uh, test has come along and um, remedied that situation. So in this case, you can see she's, uh, she has her um, brachioradialis reflex being affected by the reflex hammer. So the uh, practitioner is working on her uh, brachioradialis reflex uh, that's found right there near the elbow. And it's going to make um, the wrist move. And there's a, uh, a monitor there on the wrist, and that's all connected to the computer. So again, to the millisecond, we'll be able to understand what's going on with that reflex speed, and then through algorithms we can understand uh, what's going on with the metabolic rate. And so here's an example of a report that would come back uh, from the Thyroflex, and normally it's three to five different uh, reflex uh, examples that you would do. You would hit three to five times, at least three you'd need to get a relatively accurate test. And so here on the right-hand side of the slide, we can get this example. I kind of just blew it up to kind of show us what those ranges would be. So the sweet spot of what we're looking for uh, is between about 50 to 100 milliseconds. Between 101 and 135 milliseconds, this is kind of like a, a sort of neutral zone where there could be some suboptimal situations going on that might not necessarily be full-blown hypometabolism or hypothyroidism. In that range of 101 to 135, there we really want to look at nutritional deficiencies. I mean, we want to look at nutritional deficiencies anyway, but perhaps in this situation, it's largely just nutritional deficiencies and it's just slightly off. Now, once we get above 136 milliseconds, we start to enter into the realm of hypometabolism and hypothyroidism. Coming back all the way down on that range, you see less than 50, even less than 40 for sure, we start considering hyperthyroidism. So this is just all about reflex speed, again, in time. So if the reflex speed is slow, we would consider this hypometabolic hypothyroidism. Again, greater than 136 milliseconds. If it's really fast, we hit that brachioradialis reflex and it goes really fast, then we're thinking um, hyperthyroidism, high metabolism, too much thyroid hormone. So this can be used diagnostically and it also definitely can be used um, from a treatment process over time and uh, monitoring the situation and understanding what's going on with their metabolism and what is perhaps the best fine-tuned dose of thyroid hormone for that patient. So um, one of the other ways to go about doing this, aside from just simply looking at the uh, Thyroflex, which is about 98% accurate, um, the algorithms that they used and the statistics and research they're using is based off of the classic indirect telemetry, which is um, what we're talking about here in this slide. So this is also looking at resting metabolic rate. We're measuring it in, in, in the more classic way using indirect telemetry. We use a review machine by CORE. And this is measuring oxygen consumption. And the machine can recognize that as well as the amount of carbon dioxide coming out as the patient is relaxed and breathing through um, the tube. So um, it's, it's pretty cool how it works. Um, and 
the patient just has to be very relaxed. We get them very relaxed prior. We get them regulated in a room um, and relaxed and temperature regulated. And then we go through with the process of, of testing. There has there's certain restrictions, fasting, no smoking, alcohol, things like that prior to the test. And it can really provide a very accurate understanding of what's going on with metabolic rate. Of course, it can let us know what's going on with calorie count as well. But it's been long known that T3 increases mitochondrial oxygen consumption. We've just known this uh, for years. It just stimulates the mitochondria in a very special way. So whenever we're talking about mitochondrial rehabilitation or we're talking about working on the mitochondria in one way or another, uh, thyroid hormone affects it uh, really second to none. Um, and so we really want to consider that when we're talking about mitochondrial disease or dysfunction. And certainly we want to talk about when we're thinking about hypometabolism and low thyroid, they're all, they're just very much interrelated. So here's an example of um, one of the readouts, the printouts that would come um, with that resting metabolic rate test. So you can see here at the top, uh, it's talking about calorie uh, resting energy expenditure. Um, they do a decent calculation for lifestyle calories and then uh, beyond that, again, it's an estimation uh, for exercise. So those are variant, of course. The resting energy expenditures can be based definitely on, the, on what the machine calculated with the oxygen consumption, but uh, exercise and lifestyle would be a, a, an estimate uh, based on uh, other portions of the algorithm. But the thing that we look at probably the most is the uh, resting metabolic rate there at the bottom um, that's circled in red. So normal would be the zero point um, and fast or slow is you know plus or minus to, to zero. And our optimal range is about a plus or minus 5%, at least plus or minus 10. Um, in this particular example, it's showing fast. Um, but uh, that's what we're looking for. So if somebody comes in and they have a suboptimal metabolism, and uh, they have many signs and symptoms that are presenting as low thyroid or high thyroid, but let's say the more common low thyroid. If it's low on the resting metabolic rate and they have all of these signs and symptoms, then we strongly consider a trial of thyroid hormone and look for improvement clinically as well as look for improvement with the resting metabolic rate. Um, it's really not that complicated. Um, but I think um, it's been made very complicated by uh, the TSH test and just looking at blood tests as being able to dictate to us clinically what's going on with their body. It suggests towards it, those labs suggest towards it, doesn't necessarily let us know. Even this test still is suggesting. I just believe that it's uh, a little more accurate than just simply looking at labs. Let's talk a little bit about LDN. Um, and this is a slide from the 15-minute presentation um, that will be given at the LDN conference uh, this year. And this is what we've done internally. We have uh, been tracking and uh, observational internal data on LDN thyroid antibodies for about the past two years, you know, the best we could to, in our busy practice. And we focused on Hashimoto's. And so what this is showing, um, we, we collected data uh, on 
39 patients who were just doing LDN, as well as certainly other things with their therapy. Um, but we separated between LDN patients and, and LDN patients who were also doing some form of gut repair. Um, that means that we found some form of uh, issue with food allergies, and then we added in um, treatment for that. So you can see here, it's pretty significant. Um, patients on the LDN, uh, just in and of itself, again, along with thyroid hormone, other things they would be doing, hormone replacement, etc. But just with the LDN, without doing anything extra significantly with their diet or healing the gut in any direct way, those patients had a very significant decrease uh, in their anti-TPO and anti-TG. And that's something that, you know, very often doctors will, you know, from a conventional standpoint will say, you just can't, you can't decrease that. There, there's nothing you can really do about it. And it's just not true. And I'm sure that many of us uh, watching this understand that there is something you can do. And if you are watching this and you don't think that there was anything you, you could do, you can. Um, and I believe LDN is one of those things that can help to lower it. It is very immune modulating and has this capacity to really work on um, the thyroid. And uh, my goal is to have us all sort of um, look into this more deeply and understand this even more so. This is a very small sample size even here what we have. I, I look forward to adding to this data for myself internally, but I would hope that others would do even more with this um, to show that LDN has that ability to really regulate the immune system and bring down um, antibodies uh, in, in Hashimoto's. So here's the uh, gut repair protocol that we tend to use. And this is really important as we're talking about thyroid and sort of comprehension. Um, we want to look at the gut. We want to, in, in naturopathic medicine, we say heal the gut and the rest will follow. And so this is what we tend, what we did certainly with what I just presented with that data, but this is what we generally do in our, in our clinic. Um, this is our gut repair protocol. We start off with screening for 154 different foods in terms of IgG reactivity. We'll also look at gluten and wheat reactivity with a separate test. And then once we find what things they are reactive to or not, they just simply avoid those foods. Along with that, part of the protocol would be to give them a gut cocktail that's described here. And they would mix all this together. The glutamine, fructooligosaccharides, acacia senegal, N-acetyl-D-closamine, slippery elm, aloe vera juice. They put that all together um, in a little bit of water or juice of their choice and drink that twice a day. It's extremely soothing. The high-potency probiotic, we start off with 300 billion uh, CFUs daily for 10 days. That's like a loading dose, then 100 billion for a couple of months after that, and then to a maintenance dose of about 30 billion. And then finally, they'll use a dual-phase digestive enzyme formula, one or two uh, pills with each meal as needed. Sometimes it's just with a heavy meal. Maybe they'll do it for all three meals or whatever it is that they find benefit from with that, but at least with a heavy meal a day. And they do all this for three months. And again, we found this to be extremely um, effective. So again, we want to look at this as a comprehensive approach to thyroid hormone treatment. Um, first of all, we always want to look at uh, the cause. In naturopathic medicine, one of our tenets is tole causum, or treat the cause. I believe that that cause very often is um, autoimmunity. 
And if we can work on the immune system and getting that regulated and perhaps using LDN and other measures, um, we can actually treat the cause and take away a lot of the burden on that patient as far as their metabolism is concerned and as far as the whole reason is why they have the low thyroid in the first place. And then part of that, of course, is looking at the entire gut, looking even at detoxification. We do a lot of uh, IV therapy as well and a lot of diet counseling. And then, of course, balancing out the endocrine system. You know, the endocrine system is really elegant. We, we've developed an endocrine system in the womb before we ever even developed a nervous system. And so we've had hormones around us since uh, minute one. And if we can balance that out for patients, um, I really believe that um, many things get better, including what's going on with the immune system. And then, of course, this metabolic rate, bringing back to this idea that we want to focus on metabolism when we're looking at uh, comprehension uh, for thyroid hormone management for patients. So let's move on to adrenals, um, those small little glands that sit on top of the kidneys that secrete adrenaline or epinephrine, norepinephrine, and obviously extremely important for the stress response. And unfortunately, uh, in the midst of our society, we often have a lot of uh, stress that leads to all kinds of things. And what we like to coin really more as adrenal dysfunction, we often hear the, uh, the, to the term coined as adrenal fatigue, and sometimes it is fatigued out, uh, but it very often is, and maybe even more often than full fatigue, it's in a, some form of dysfunction, not secreting the hormone when it should. So we prefer that term, but it does present in all kinds of ways. Now, one of the big things is, of course, fatigue, uh, just feeling wired and tired, just kind of out of it, but certainly the immune system is going to be affected. You, uh, you, your adrenals are responsible for also balancing out the immune system. Many of the hormones coming from the adrenals are going to balance out the immune system. But as the adrenals are going into dysfunction, it presents with all these things, cravings and just you know, feeling hopeless, helpless, and defeated. I like this slide because it just kind of quickly shows us clinically what you would see um, with adrenal burnout, let's say adrenal dysfunction. And it kind of starts from left and kind of tends to move towards the right. So initially, the sort of wired for sound uh, super diva um, will present with high cortisol. The adrenals are overproducing. Um, neurotransmitters are also elevated. And we'll talk about that in a second. And then it can move into kind of one of the two in the middle, uh, wired and tired, that's presenting either as allergic and effect, infected or wired and tired but you're inflamed and in pain. And there can be a combination of those two as well. But that's either high cortisol, low neurotransmitters, or low cortisol, high neurotransmitters. And when you know that based on testing, you can kind of understand a little bit more of what's going on with that patient. And then finally, just plain tired. These, these people are, this would be what we would definitely coin as adrenal fatigue. Um, sometimes this can even go into the full-blown uh, condition called Addison's disease. So this would be a critical situation. Now, cortisol being the main hormone coming out of the adrenal glands um, is something we really look at very closely as it's 
incredibly important for energy, again, immune regulation, these things that we were already talking about, cortisol being really one of the main hormones involved with all of that. So we test this through salivary testing. And what this is showing us here is our normal circadian rhythm of cortisol. In the morning, you can see here that uh, it should be nice and high. This helps you to get out of bed. This gives you a surge of energy to, so you can get going with your day. Cortisol then should naturally start to come down. Maybe a little bit of bump in the late afternoon, but for the most part, it continues to trend down. By the time 10 p.m. hits, it should be nice and low. And when it's low, it's easier to get to sleep and stay asleep. And then throughout the night, by 3, 4 a.m., it's starting to rise again, and the cycle repeats. So what we can do is a, salivary, a simple salivary test to be able to understand what's going on with this circadian rhythm and see where uh, a certain patient's uh, situation is with their cortisol. So here's an example of that salivary test on the bottom of this slide. Um, in this particular case, this patient had low cortisol first thing in the morning. You can see where the sort of the normal range would be and where their results were. And they were a little bit high at night. This is extremely common. Many times the, um, the amount of adrenal cortisol hormone is, is, is plenty of it, um, but it's just not being secreted when it should be. So it's perhaps low in the morning, but high at night, and then you know normal throughout the middle of the day, and overall the amount is, is, is still normal what it's being secreted. It's just not being secreted when it should be. So there's ways to you know, work with that. Here on the top of the slide, it's showing uh, the classic neurotransmitters that we will look at um, when we're talking about adrenal function. So we look at this from a neuroendocrine standpoint um, by looking at these neurotransmitters as well. And this can be extremely helpful. And it's very important to kind of what we're talking about here in this, um, in this presentation. So thyroid hormone itself is responsible for stimulating the release and regulation of these neurotransmitters. So there's this effect of thyroid hormone on this. So here's an example of how thyroid is affecting adrenal function. So serotonin, this is optimized when thyroid hormone is optimized for sure. There's ample evidence showing that thyroid hormone affects the serotonin system in the brain. Even patients on SSRIs, optimal thyroid function is likely needed to potentiate the effects of the SSRIs. And epinephrine, as another example, this is responsible for converting T4 to T3 in the brain. But if you have excessive epinephrine, this will lower T3 production and increase reverse T3, which is a sort of an inert version of T3. So balance is always the key. So I'd, like a, I'd like to take a quick moment to talk about hydrocortisone. So hydrocortisone is um, essentially cortisol. It's a bioidentical version of cortisol. It is a steroid, and so we often hear the word steroid, and we think, oh, that's going to be really bad for us, and obviously it definitely can be in excessive amounts. But through the work of Jeffries and, and, and others, uh, and certainly within the functional medicine world, we do understand that physiologic doses of hydrocortisone is very different from high amounts of synthetic versions of cortisol, such as prednisone. And there's a huge difference in terms of what it can do for the body from 
you know, helping with things like adrenal dysfunction and certainly huge differences in terms of the side effects. So the dosing is in this range of somewhere between, you know, 5 to 30, maybe even 40 milligrams a day. Um, physiologic amounts, we secrete naturally about 20, maybe upwards of 40 milligrams of cortisol daily. So we can replace within those ranges and they become physiologic. And it truly can change a patient's life. Um, I've seen it so many times. When we do a salivary test and we can see other clinical signs and symptoms of low suboptimal cortisol production, and we replace that with hydrocortisone uh, for you know, a finite amount of time, sometimes as little as three, maybe 12 months, it just can make such an impact on that patient to allow them to get well, um, to get them out of bed, uh, to get moving uh, again and with life. Uh, so it really can be amazingly effective. And we do look at it as a finite medication nonetheless uh, and go out of our way to uh, wean them off of it when it's time. But even with that, we don't rush it. We do it when it's appropriate. So again, adrenals and thyroid are affecting one another. I'll give a couple more examples of this, uh, and again, how we're looking at this comprehensively. So two things I think that are really important, cortisol and uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine, I had said earlier, it, it does increase reverse T3. So T3 being the main form of thyroid hormone, reverse T3 being a mirror image of that molecule that is responsible really for lowering metabolic rate. Where T3 is increasing it, reverse T3 is lowering it. So essentially, stress lowers metabolic rate. Stress creating the cortisol, the epinephrine, the norepinephrine, that adrenaline, and that increases the reverse T3 that again decreases the metabolic rate. Another thing is that cortisol decreases TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. Now this does two things in and of itself. One, when you decrease that TSH, um, this lowers overall thyroid production, thyroid hormone production. And two, it potentially masks a suboptimal thyroid condition and low metabolism if the diagnosing physician relies solely upon the TSH. So a TSH can look very normal, uh, but that's just because the patient is under so much stress, they've got excessive cortisol, that's just masking what would otherwise have been perhaps a high TSH that makes it look like low thyroid. So. Again, when we're looking at adrenal repair, we're looking at it comprehensively. There's multiple things that we're looking at. Um, and, and this is kind of how we kind of go about it. First of all, we want to look at, at balancing out the blood sugar level. And I think that that's probably one of the key things to help getting someone well. It's also one of the key things that helps us understand uh, if somebody has an adrenal issue in the first place, what's going on with their blood sugar. And we do this with protein, and certainly we do this with high fat. Um, I am a uh, large proponent of the Weston A. Price Foundation, and this idea of an ancestral diet coming back to our roots of um, really higher fat, higher quality animal fat, and uh, moderate amounts of protein, and fruits and vegetables, particularly vegetables that would be fermented. And this is, again, ancestral, how our um, ancestors would eat. And, how, and we've got about 43 different 
um, ancestral type of cultures that we can study today, and they all eat in this similar way, and this is certainly what Weston Price uh, figured out in his uh, uh, multi-continent journey uh, in the early 1900s. So I'm bringing that up about the fat as well, because I tend to look at patients as athletes, whether they're actual athletes or not. I work with athletes, but I really feel like almost all my patients in one way or another are athletes, either they're the super mom or they're the corporate CEO, or there's you know someone who's just trying to really perform. And they're coming to me because they want to continue to perform. And it's easy to say, take a vacation, but that's not always what they can do. Of course, we say, let's try to mitigate uh, your stress, but it's not always possible just by saying, just stop doing that. So we want to allow patients to be able to function. But what these patients do that are trying to super perform, just like often what an athlete will do is athletes don't really overtrain. We hear about overtraining. It's, uh, it's just something that doesn't really happen that often. But what they do do is they undernourish themselves. And it's that undernourishment, it's that lack of recovery through nutrition that leads them into overtraining as athletes or leads them into this adrenal dysfunction, this lack of recovery when they're trying to super perform in their everyday lives. So we promote this idea of getting back to just simply eating. People are just, they're skipping meals or they're eating a lot of refined carbohydrates and they're just not repairing themselves. Carbohydrates, we view this as energy. Protein is for repair, but fat is for recovery. And adrenal repair is all about recovery. And there's other botanical things that we do along with all of this. And it again, it's a comprehensive approach by looking at all hormones. Let's move on to growth hormone. This is certainly about longevity, regeneration, um, anti-aging or age management, what I think is a better term, but anti-aging is certainly uh, the term that's used. Um, this is about uh, expansion within that. Now, IGF-1 is the main hormone that we're often considering when it comes to growth hormone. Um, it is a storage form, so to speak, of uh, actual growth hormone. So growth hormone comes out of the pituitary gland um, and through the liver it will be converted into uh, IGF-1. And it's IGF-1 that is also stimulating muscle, bone growth, development, um, all kinds of things with you know, neurological implications and recovery. And that's the thing about growth hormone. Um, yes, it helps with muscle and bone, um, but it certainly helps with sleep and recovery. We'll talk about that in a minute. But back to the, uh, to the IGF-1. This, you know, I, I like these, these charts here uh, that show really when things start to become critical for most people, and it's right around 50. And we talk about that a lot in our practice where we see whether it's estrogen or testosterone or growth hormone or DHEA, things become the most critical very often right around this 50 age uh, mark. Um, so that tends to be a, a large demographic for us of who we see because that's where you tend to start really manifesting a lot of uh, these symptoms. Um, so we're looking to get the IGF-1 levels up uh, around 300 or more for men. Uh, 200, 220 or so for women. We also look at IGF binding protein 3. Um, our therapeutic goal for that's uh, less than 3,000, but really 
uh, we look at the IGF-1 to the IGF binding protein 3 as a ratio, and we're looking for about a 1 to 10 to 1 to 14 on that. But the main goal really is to optimize the IGF-1 levels, and there are ways to do it. So here's some of those benefits I was already kind of alluding to. Yes, it definitely helps with muscle and bone. That would be the kind of classic understanding, linear uh, bone growth, etc. It's giving us energy. It's helping with uh, memory and focus. Some patients even report vision uh, improvements. It can, it's extremely calming. Um, helps with your immune system, skin, body uh, changes, particularly visceral fat. But one of the biggest things that I think people benefit from and will notice relatively quickly is their sleep improves. And this is part of that idea of recovery. So how does growth hormone affect thyroid, thyroid uh, hormone affect growth hormone? There's many ways. I'll, I'll review some. Growth hormone controls thyroid production for sure, uh, particularly in hyperthyroidism. Growth hormone increases 5' deiodinase, which increases that T4 to T3 conversion. And growth hormone lowers reverse T3. That's probably through a mechanism of, of modulating cortisol. But again, that's lowering reverse T3. If you lower reverse T3, you're capable of having more stimulation through what T3 you do, regular T3 you do have in your system. So therefore, metabolism is affected positively. And, of course, thyroid uh, stimulates the pituitary to increase growth hormone. Remember, thyroid hormone affects every single cell in your body, head to toe, inside and out. Um, so that would include the, uh, the cells within the pituitary to secrete growth hormone. So how can we go about affecting uh, growth hormone naturally? Um, there's many ways. Um, and let me just review peptide therapy here. I think this is a very exciting therapy. Uh, peptides, uh, referring to a small amino acid chain of less than normally about 70 amino acids, um, so very small proteins, so to speak. Um, and it's been around, this peptide therapy has been around since the 90s, uh, perhaps, well, maybe even technically even further back than that, but it really had a beginning heyday in about the 90s, and now, maybe even the past five years, we're starting to see more and more of an understanding of it. Um, and it's exciting because the um, side effects in general tend to be a lot lower than other medications. Um, and when it comes to natural growth hormone stimulation, it really is a very excellent way to go about stimulating growth hormone because it does so uh, indirectly. It's not giving exogenous growth hormone. Uh, meaning growth hormone from the outside, putting it in, that tends to come equipped with more potential side effects that can be managed, but uh, they, they have more side effects with actual growth hormone uh, replacement. But with this, this is just telling the pituitary to make more growth hormone. So CJC-1295 and ipamorelin, uh, two very excellent um, peptides that will help to stimulate the um, production of growth hormone at the pituitary level. But tesamorelin, this is the sort of Cadillac version of um, a peptide therapy for growth hormone, and it's excellent research uh, behind it. Now, bremelanotide, uh, also very exciting uh, and something that's very useful for us in our practice. Uh, we focus a lot on sexual health and optimization for libido, and bremelanotide affects the um, melanocortin receptors in the brain. 
uh, M3 a little bit, mostly M4. And this stimulates and begins that process of stimulating libido and sexual arousal. And it does it very effectively. Uh, currently, bremelanotide is in phase three clinical trials. Um, and it's you know, soon to be fully FDA approved and, um, for the use of sexual uh, arousal dysfunction in women um, as well as men. So uh, it's, it's pretty effective and it's exciting to be able to use it. Now, one, a couple more things here about the peptide therapy SARMs or selective androgen receptor modulators. Also, very exciting options here um, when you have a patient that has had prostate cancer, but they're looking for androgenic benefits, such as uh, helping with libido, certainly helping with muscle mass, a response to uh, exercise, maintaining bone, preventing osteoporosis through aging. A SARM might be that option because testosterone often isn't for that patient who's had prostate cancer. Um, so the great thing about a SARM is it does not aromatize into estrogen. A SARM also does not convert into DHT. And it's both the DHT and the estrogen, that particular estradiol, that we would be concerned about in prostate cancer and stimulating uh, prostatic growth. So a SARM... Um, has the potential uh, to really be a great alternative for those who have that issue. And then thymosins, this is uh, also very, very exciting. I think also very pertinent to the LDN conference here and that we're focusing very often on immune, immunity and the immune system and autoimmunity. And thymosins prove to also be this very excellent peptide that uh, can help with overall immune modulation, and that's really what, th there's two different thymosins, one's thymosin A1 and the other one's thymosin B4. Thymosin A1 has immune modulating effects, the thymosin B4, uh, this is used in wound healing, tissue regeneration, also an anti-inflammatory, great research uh, behind both of these. Um, there's over 30 countries right now that are util utilizing thymosin B4 for um, tuberculosis and other infectious diseases. So let's move on to insulin digestion and how perhaps this might be affecting what's going on with the thyroid and vice versa. So we look at insulin as a, as a hormone um, issue and this all normally comes from you know, the carbohydrate diet issue that's causing excessive insulin that is leading into diabetes. As you can see in this graphic, we've got one out of four people don't even know that they have diabetes, even though we've got about 30 million people floating around with it. But where we tend to see most of the issue is in pre-diabetes, and that's where I think the focus uh, really needs to be. I mean, one, we, we see 86 million people. There's more people walking around with pre-diabetes, and that, this is a little bit more of a prevention uh, demographic as well. If we can get these people, then we're... Um, focusing on a demographic of prevention before they get to full-blown diabetes. So again, 86 million people in the United States with pre-diabetes, but 9 out of 10 don't know they have it. And I think in part why 9 out of 10 don't know they have it. One is because uh, from a conventional standpoint, labs are looked at, so you have to be really broken before they decide to do anything. Um, also, uh, I think people are walking around with a level of obesity um, that is becoming common that is making it seem normal. 
but common doesn't mean normal. But certainly more and more people are overweight, and that's just becoming part of the norm. So I think we don't necessarily see that as a medical issue, and uh, I think we all know that it is. So part of the metabolic syndrome, I, I left this slide in here just to kind of remind us of what that all means. Part of the metabolic syndrome would include type 2 diabetes. And these classic things, of course, hypertension, high blood pressure, you know, heart disease, uh, fatty liver. But the two things that I think go misunderstood or, or just not talked about enough are the fact that with metabolic syndrome, with excessive amounts of, of insulin, and particularly sugar or glucose, uh, we see increased risk for dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and it just feeds cancer. Um, there was studies that were done on the range of 100 to 109, um, this often no man's land that clinically people don't do anything with. Uh, we want to see glucose under 100 generally, um, and but when it gets 101, 102, you know, was there an issue? Again, most of the time doctors don't do anything until it gets above 110, until they start to consider insulin resistance even at 110. And so with that range of this 100 to roughly 110, there's been studies to show that it increases the risk for dementia, uh, Alzheimer's, and cancer. Um, so we definitely want to look at uh, excessive sugar and start working on that before it gets uh, really bad. And so with insulin affecting thyroid, thyroid uh, affecting insulin and digestion, a couple quick examples, thyroid hormone improves insulin sensitivity. So part of insulin resistance is a, a lack of thyroid hormone very often. Um, and excessive insulin, that actually blocks the conversion of T4 to T3, just being a couple quick examples. But again, we want to look at things comprehensively. So one of the tools that we use um, to help patients with um, not just insulin resistance, but even mitochondrial disorders um, would be the ketogenic uh, diet or maybe even looking at this as a ketogenic lifestyle. And for some patients, if it is really beneficial, they can make it a lifestyle. So the ketogenic diet, just referring to 75% uh, fat, 20% protein, 5% carbs. I always like to uh, remind everyone that the ketogenic diet is not a high-protein diet. It is a high-fat diet. The fat is the key for the success of this diet uh, to get the, the physiology to shift from being a glucose burner into being a fat burner. The fat content of the diet is really key. And if, in fact, if the protein content is too high, it's very difficult to get into ketosis. So um, that's the basic ratios. But what does the ketogenic diet uh, do? Um, it does a lot. And this is all very exciting, uh, I think. And, and for our patients, certainly, uh, they want to lose weight. And it, and it can help you with that. Um, it's very effective uh, with that when someone does it correctly. And if they're being guided correctly through it and if they are you know, focusing on uh, comprehensive care and they're focusing on hormone replacement therapy that's comprehensive, it can be amazingly effective. But there's a lot more things that will, uh, someone will benefit from. Chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, cancer, uh, mitochondrial disease, hormone balances in general, uh, certainly epilepsy. And with epilepsy, you know, back in the 1910s or so, 19, early, somewhere in the 1910s, 
the Mayo Clinic was they were doing studies on children with epilepsy, and they found that if they fasted them, that they would uh, have less seizures. And that was exciting, but it also wasn't very practical because you couldn't continue to fast a child. You had to make sure that they were eating. But it was then in the 1920s that they found, as a little bit of time went on, and they readdressed it, if they gave that child a um, ketogenic diet, it would help with the epilepsy. But part of that was to understand that the ketogenic diet is almost, in a way, like fasting. And we also know that certain fasting diets can also potentially be helpful for cancer. Again, we're starving the cancer of the, of the sugar. But you can do the same thing with the ketogenic diet and still maintain calories. So again, with fibromyalgia, I wanted to mention that uh, briefly, that fibromyalgia and low thyroid are almost virtually the same thing. They have their nuances, of course, but essentially they present uh, as a hypometabolic uh, mitochondrial thyroid issue or uh, hormone issue. So the ketogenic diet has this huge potential. Oh, and the Charlie Foundation, by the way, um, this, you know, the ketogenic diet came back into vogue back in the 1990s when a mother was trying to help her child who was having uh, uncontrolled seizures. And uh, she went into the literature and found a lot of that information from the Mayo Clinic from the 1920s and decided to put him on a ketogenic diet, and it, and it worked. And then they started the Charlie Foundation, uh, and Charlie is now you know, an adult. Sex hormones, uh, this idea of sexual energy and sexuality, certainly the issues of menopause, uh, perimenopause, low testosterone for men. So starting uh, with the ladies... Uh, sex hormones are obviously incredibly pivotal and has a lot to do with uh, sexuality, opening up to sexual energy, creativity, owning your own personal power. Sex hormones, estrogen and testosterone have a lot to do with being optimistic, getting motivated to do things. And when these things go away, as we go into perimenopause and menopause, hot flashes, night sweats, sleeping difficulties, vaginal dryness, eye dryness, skin dryness, you know, period issues, menstruation issues, loss of memory, certainly loss of libido, incontinence, and the classic triad of osteoporosis, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. And so when we're working with hormones, we're working with disease prevention, or at least mitigation, um, so I think that's one of the, the great things about hormone replacement therapy, that we're looking at this from a longevity standpoint and a disease prevention standpoint. Women have testosterone. Now, I'm sure many of us watching this understand that, but maybe some of us don't. And I like to emphasize this, that, that women do have testosterone. They have it uh, really for essentially the same reasons men have it. And it has the same basic effects in a woman's body as it does for as it does a man. In fact, women have more testosterone floating around in their blood than they even do estrogen. Estrogen has a large impact, of course, and women have more estrogen than men. But technically, women have more testosterone and androgens floating around in their system. So it's helping with libido and muscle and response to exercise and memory and focus, anxiety, depression, mood swings, irritability, certainly incontinence. Um, it has a lot to do with balancing out your immune system. 
And so when I'm working with women, testosterone really can be um, a game changer. And they very much appreciate getting the replacement of that in a very effective way. So let's move on to, to guys. And men want testosterone and the power of their sex hormone certainly comes through their, you know, mastering their own sexual energy, helping them to become assertive, um, self-reliant. Um, this is this idea of the social implications of testosterone and what this has to do for men, uh, creating a sense of self-reliance and assertiveness so they can get things done, helping them to become optimistic and motivated. So when all of that starts to go away and this We'll slide right after this. We'll talk about when that happens. But low energy, again, libido, erectile dysfunction, mood swings, um, irritability, and also this classic triad of osteoporosis, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. These three diseases are at a higher risk for the aging male. And there's plenty of research to show that as we enhance testosterone, we can actually mitigate those diseases, if not reverse them. So... When does testosterone start to decline? Um, there it is at 50 again. So it's just about 50 years old where it becomes more clinically relevant to a man. It's starting to decline uh, pretty regularly after even the age of 20 or 30, but it becomes clinically significant very often at 50. Now, I've been doing this for 11 years. I, I see people younger and younger coming in, so it's not that we don't have patients in their 20s suffering from low testosterone. We certainly do. But 50 tends to be this really key uh, time frame. And we're looking for an optimal range. Uh, optimization, again, is the key. And we're looking for an optimal range for testosterone for men around 700 to 1100 nanograms per deciliter. So um, testosterone decline, uh, when is this, this happening? Again, I was just said that it's about 1% annually after the age of 2030. Some research says 40, and uh, that's where it kind of begins. But there has been this sort of global decline of testosterone. We're starting to see that. Finland, uh, as one example, uh, had uh, a study showing that there's a decline between age match controls of 25 to 29-year-olds to 70 to 74-year-olds. They have lower testosterone, again, age-matched. Um, in Denmark, free testosterone is lower. We're seeing some evidence of that. It's a big study by Travis and Dunn, 22% decline of testosterone from 1989 to 2004. So we're really seeing this generational decline in male testosterone. And we've got data now going back about three generations. So we're, we're able to see now that there's a generational decline. It's not just simply, yes, yes, we do know that we're, there's a decline as we age. That would be uh, considered normal uh, to have some level of decline but we're seeing an overall decline from age match controls through generations. And also, we're definitely seeing an issue with sperm. Um, and this is a more of a, or at least <laughs> perhaps recently, it was a very controversial concept uh, because there's, for all the research that's been out about it, um, there is uh, controversial research to come out and say, no, that's not what we're actually seeing. But let's go through some of what uh, uh, I've seen here and what I've kind of come across. 1.9% annual decline in sperm density. This just means that, generally speaking, we do see about a 2% annual decline in the aging male. But we are seeing some overall generational decline as well. Here's a Denmark study from 1977 to 95. We're seeing a 
decreased quality, morphology, changing. United Kingdom, they've uh, got a decline here from 98 to 78 uh, million from 51 to 1973. An Italian uh, study showing a 30% uh, decrease in concentration. India, 50% in 50% infertility rate, very high. And in, U, in the U.S., we've, these studies that came out in the 90s um, showing this roughly 50% decline in sperm density from 1938 to 1990. So that's really when all of it started, when they really started looking at all this, was when this large landmark studies, these studies came out. But despite all the controversy that came from that, there was another large study that came out um, in uh, it was a French study, and they found there was definitely um, a decline, but there was still doubt. Now, these slides that I, these past couple slides I just showed you here was from a, a conference I went to and spoke at. It was an international congress on naturopathic medicine in London back in July, and I presented on this in, in, in early July, uh, based on you know just my reading of the literature and presenting on what I saw about testosterone and sperm, including this controversy about the sperm. Um, and it was only just a few weeks after that another study came out, and that study is this one. And it was a big one. Um, this was uh, looking at sperm from North America, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. It was a study that came out of Jerusalem, and uh, really, really elegant regression analysis. It was a meta-analysis using regression uh, statistics. Uh, really great stuff beyond me. Uh, really elegant what they did. And they saw this decline. And they saw this decline. What's interesting about this, aside from just seeing the uh, decline from it was 1970 to 2011, aside from seeing that, if they just looked at, just took out a chunk of time they saw no matter what that there was still the decline, even if they, they, they wanted to see, well, is it slowing down? And so they just looked at time is like closer to us, maybe the past five or 10 years, and they still found, no, it's all, the, the decline is happening. It's not slowing down in any way. So in this slide here, this is just talking about this idea of testosterone. It's as testosterone goes down in men, what are some of the increased disease risks that we start to see? And this, uh, for women as well, and women have about one-tenth of the amount of testosterone as men do. So you can sort of see the ranges as it just kind of all goes down, increasing the risk ultimately down to, you know, erectile dysfunction, complete loss of libido, and you're collecting all these diseases, so to speak, in terms of increased risk anyway. Uh, you're increasing those risks as the levels continue to decline. So again, it's all about optimization so we can mitigate those disease risks. So how sex hormones affect thyroid, how thyroid affects sex hormone. A few examples. Estrogen, estradiol particularly, increases thyroid binding globulin. Now that would potentially lower the active form of thyroid hormone, but testosterone decreases thyroid binding globulin. So when you're working with both estrogen and testosterone, you're balancing out uh, the effect of either. Estradiol lowers TSH. It also increases T4 and T3. It may or may not be good in certain situations, but for the most part, good. T3 increases the sensitivity of luteinizing hormone, or LH. 
Uh, low thyroid increases the risk of ovarian cysts and uh, enlargement as well, so this is also in part due to a lack of uh, iodine. So this is how these two are working together. Now, it is important to focus on this difference between bioidentical hormones and synthetic hormones. Um, and it doesn't mean that all synthetic hormones are horrible, uh, but generally speaking, um, it, it does. And we do our best to work with a natural bioidentical hormone when we can. I like to use the hand analogy. Um, what this is just showing us, I would say that, you know, if estrogen is, we assume it's the shape here of, 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 a, of a hand. I always want to give the same bioidentical shape. I want to match that up with a hand that looks just like it. Um, a synthetic version has extra fingers on it. And it is all those extra fingers and that different shape that can increase the risk uh, for disease. Now, if we assume and agree that a bioidentical is the way to go, and that perhaps is the best way to put a hormone into the system, what is uh, the best way to deliver it? And there's many different ways. And there's oral forms, there's creams, gels, patches, uh, injections, and there's also subcutaneous pellet therapy. Now this particular slide is showing us uh, hormone levels on one axis and just time on the other. And it's showing this variance of where hormone levels go based on the delivery mechanism being used. And after using uh, many different ways of delivering hormone, I, I have found that in general pellets um, do provide a consistent level um, better really than almost anything. Um, but consistent level doesn't necessarily always mean it's, that's everything and, and you always want to use the delivery mechanism that's going to work best for the patient. But generally speaking, um, after treating thousands of patients with pellets, it really has been an excellent way to go. Um, here's a little bit more about it. So a trocar is used to place these pellets underneath the skin uh, in the adipose tissue. And we get consistent levels highly absorbable, high compliance, I always say set it and forget it, it's kind of there slowly secreting and releasing the hormone over time. It takes me about five minutes to do the procedure and it lasts three to six months. So there's a lot of attractive things about that clinically for a patient and the benefits that they can yield from all of that. Um, again, the consistency is there. We don't have to worry about the hormone not being there because they didn't take a pill or because there was a variance uh, with the way the cream was working or not. It's there pumping out hormone 24-7. But it's not even linear with a pellet. What's great about the pellet is based on cardiovascular demand. If the heart is beating faster and blood flow is passing past that pellet more rapidly, it will dissolve more rapidly. So you'll get more because your heart's beating faster, let's say, because you're exercising. Um, if you're sleeping, your heart beats slower, you'll still get hormone, but you'll get less. So there's always little ebbs and flows of hormone release from pellets, but it's not a huge spike of too much and not enough. And again, after working with pellets for just so many years, um, I had the pleasure of working and studying with Gino Tutera, one of the uh, pioneers of subcutaneous pellet therapy working in an extremely busy practice for about eight years focusing on this therapy it really is a superior way to put hormone into the system. Um, moving on, another way to put in testosterone into the system would be uh, twice weekly subcutaneous hormone injections. 
This is something that works really well for testosterone, particularly for men. What's great about this, um, we have figured out uh, how to use a small insulin needle with a very small syringe um, placed right into the fat. Um, so it's a little bit easier, in fact, maybe a lot easier than an intramuscular injection. It just takes a very short period of time to do. And by doing it twice a week, what we wind up achieving is um, a more consistent level. So one of the downsides of injections is you can get huge super physiologic spikes of hormone immediately following an injection and then inevitable drops down depending on when this next injection is given. And so the patient um, doesn't feel good because they're not getting a consistent flow. So by taking uh, maybe a typical amount you would give in a given week and you split it in half and give it twice weekly, you wind up getting something that's uh, reflective of this uh, graph here. So again, we're looking for levels to be at least to be above 600, 700, trying to get it up the top end of the range around 1,000 or so. On the first injection, we would get, because it's a smaller amount, we don't get that huge spike and before it ever gets a chance to go down again, you do the second injection and up and down it goes. And so we've done many labs uh, kind of watching the peak and the trough here with the first and second lab. And uh, the variance on average would be plus or minus 150 points on the peak to the trough. And this is fantastic uh, for, uh, for an injection. To have that little of variance in testosterone levels uh, in that amount of time is, is really excellent. Excuse me. So uh, the average dose is about 50 to 75 milligrams twice weekly. It's about 100, 150, sometimes a little bit lower, every once in a while a little bit higher. But the great thing about this, because we are putting it into the fat, that's another reason why it's um, uh, keeping the levels more consistent because it's in fat versus muscle. But the other advantage with that is that it allows us to actually use less hormone. You can get more with it. Uh, and more effect with a smaller amount. It's really more about consistency and uh, quality than it is quantity. And um, the science of arousal, and I think all of this is extremely important uh, to thyroid hormone and uh, again this comprehensive approach. Uh, many patients are going to come in when they're talking about hormone replacement therapy. The two big key things they're talking about is energy and libido. They want to have a little bit more energy and they want to take that energy and use it uh, for sexual activity. But they want to feel like they want to have sex. So we look at sexual arousal on these three levels and we do our best to affect um, these three levels clinically. Now from a brain standpoint, dopamine, uh, melanin, these are hormones uh, that affect the beginning stages of arousal at the hypothalamic level, particularly in the amygdala. Serotonin is actually tends to be an inhibitor uh, at the brain level for um, arousal, one of the reasons why SSRIs often affect libido. And of course, we look at the hormone level. Now, the classic hormones that we would look at would be testosterone, estradiol, oxytocin. If these are deficient, that will affect arousal. But prolactin, when in excess, can actually decrease what's going on uh, with arousal. So we look at that as well. But I have you know, LDN and thyroid hormone here as well to say that we want to, LDN also has this way of mitigating what's going on with the brain. 
helping with all kinds of psychiatric issues that in turn can affect uh, libido. And thyroid hormone, if it is deficient and you are exhausted, you're not going to feel like really doing anything. And again, because thyroid hormone affects every cell, including the cells of the amygdala where arousal tends to start, um, it would be important for uh, sexual arousal as well. And then finally, um, actually affecting the tissue level, um, the penis, the vagina, the clitoris. Um, and so there are ways to affect this directly, and we want to consider that for patients. Um, two things that we focus on uh, at our practice is using the O-shot and the P-shot, or the orgasm shot and the priapus shot that utilizes platelet-rich plasma, and we inject this into either the penis or the vagina that is provides that PRP that is restorative and regenerative to the tissue. So we might be working with hormone really well. We get a great response uh, from that for a patient. Perhaps we're able to balance out dopamine and, and work with some other things to help with the brain side of arousal. But if the tissue isn't there and it's not uh, functioning correctly, then it doesn't matter. So we have to look at it again comprehensively. And a few books here that I would uh, recommend uh, and certainly the references behind what I was saying there. So finally, again, we just come back to this idea of comprehension. Sex hormones, thyroid, insulin, digestion, adrenals, growth hormone. We want to look at the whole thing. We want to see how these hormones dance together. And we want to continue to open our mind to the other ideas behind all of this, like detoxification, that sexuality, our immune balance, how all this affects our behavior, and vice versa, making sure musculoskeletal pain, all of this is, has been worked on, the neurological ideas, comprehension, and really looking at mitochondrial function, bringing it all together. And there's even more than what I said here, but this is just sort of that framework, that skeleton of it, and we can always add things into this to continue to improve things for patients. And so that's the end of this uh, presentation. I really want to thank everybody for your attention. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact me. Thank you. Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone, and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well. Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, my name is Dr. John Robinson, and this is a recording for the LDN Research Trust and the 27 conference, 2017 conference. Uh, my talk today is on thyroid disease, optimizing metabolism through comprehensive hormonal treatment. Uh, again, I'm Dr. John Robinson from the Hormone Zone. 
I'm a naturopathic physician and I practice in Scottsdale, Arizona. So this particular talk will focus on thyroid disease and specifically through the lens of optimizing metabolism um, and looking at uh, the idea of thyroid hormone uh, influences on the body as it relates to metabolism and vice versa and then how we can take that whole idea and put it together as a comprehensive approach towards endocrinology and other hormone systems. So I want to let everyone know right off the bat that this is an overview. I'm going to go through um, several systems and a lot of different kind of hormone approaches um, about what we specifically do and how that then will relate back to thyroid hormone and thyroid comprehensive treatment. But again, it's, a, it's an overview. Um, and I do have several uh, references throughout this presentation, um, but it's not copious and uh, certainly uh, it's not every kind of reference you would want or need with everything that I'm saying. With that said, um, I would ask you to go to the Hormone Handbook by Dr. Terry Hurtaw, which I think is an excellent uh, resource and uh, many of the things that I've learned over the years has been through his work as well. Um, so that would be just a great reference point for you. So moving on. Again, we want to focus on comprehension. Uh, we certainly believe uh, at uh, the hormone zone and what we focus on and what I've just learned over 11 years of practicing uh, natural bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, thyroid hormone, uh, focus, adrenal, etc. What we've learned over this time is that we really do need to step back and look at it comprehensively versus just myopically at one system at one time. Um, so that's really the, the other underlying concept of what we're talking about here today um, is this comprehension. And so here are the systems that we'll go through today and this is the big part of what I mean when I'm talking about comprehensive hormone replacement therapy um, goals. So we're looking at these five key systems that many of us of course are aware of. Um, so along with sex hormones and insulin and digestion, looking at thyroid hormone of course, adrenal hormones and growth hormone, we have some other systems and other concepts in and around that that create and establish this comprehension. So detoxification would be one, looking at the sexuality of the patient and are they optimized in their own sexual health Definitely what's going on with the immune system that is certainly pertinent to uh, the LDN conference and what we do with LDN. Um, behavioral and social implications of hormone and how hormone influences behavior and, and, and social uh, uh, outcomes and social influences and then vice versa. And then musculoskeletal, of course, pain, neurological implications. This would be in and around perhaps growth hormone as well pituitary brain function, and then definitely mitochondrial function. Again, um, we look at things in a comprehensive way as it relates to mitochondrial and metabolism function. Um, and I think mitochondrial function has um, been very exciting here in the past maybe even five years. There's been so much more going on with that and the clinical view of mitochondria. I think it's been very exciting. Um, and this is just something that we've looked at um, with our perspective for thyroid hormone really for the past decade. Um, so I think it's um, really, really pertinent what we're talking about here today. So I, for the, I guess for sounding redundant, uh, but again, the clinical perspective is metabolic health, um, energy, metabolism, 
and viewing health from that perspective, certainly uh, mitochondrial function metabolism is one of the theories of aging. Um, and we look and consider it from that perspective as well. Um, but certainly when it comes to thyroid hormone, and as we'll see, um, thyroid hormone is affecting metabolism really second to none. And in fact, the word metabolism comes from the word metabole, which means to change. It's about this full change in the system. Um, and it has everything and anything to do with energy and metabolism. So when we're getting into thyroid and talking about that, I'd like to just kind of go through some of the things that we focus on uh, with thyroid hormone treatment and what we've observed over the years is to be um, really the two largest problems. There's many problems, um, but if I could just narrow it down into two things um, that I think um, really is at the core of why so many patients suffer, why so many patients um, needlessly suffer and don't get the relief uh, that they're wanting, needing, and certainly deserve. Um, the first problem as I see it, is most of the time patients are on the wrong type of thyroid hormone. This tends to be um, synthetic levothyroxine. It is a T4-only monotherapy approach. Now, I also put on here that it is maybe the wrong type of thyroid hormone, and I say that as the caveat that the right type of thyroid hormone for an individual patient is the one that works, and it very well could be uh, T4 only therapy. Sometimes patients can't handle the active form of thyroid hormone, uh, which is T3. And so they may need T4. Um, and this is certainly true, but the massive majority of patients really just do better on something that isn't just singular T4 only monotherapy. One of the issues, of course, is conversion issues. We don't necessarily convert uh, from T4 to T3 uh, in some patients very efficiently, even if they are replete with uh, minerals and all the things that they need in order to convert. Adrenals are balanced, etc. They still might not convert very well. And in some patients, it actually can become toxic. And why do we see this as the number one um, prescribed medications because, or, or why is it always T4? Because it's the number one prescribed medication in the United States. It is a billion-dollar medication, Synthroid, and just even the generic level thyroxin, the Voxel, these others um, are, are just really big money involved in that. And so we just see, we tend to see patients coming in just on this type of therapy, and most of the time it's missing the mark. So what would potentially be the right type of thyroid hormone for a given patient? Um, uh, I, I tend to believe it is natural desiccated thyroid hormone. Um, nature thyroid is being one example, armor being another. And so this is a, a product that contains um, active T3. But like I said in the previous slide, again, maybe this is the right type of thyroid hormone for them. Um, and, and I do believe it is for the majority of people, but it isn't always. Um, and so we have to serve the patient in front of us, of course. Um, but again, uh, generally speaking, uh, and not even generally, I mean, just really uh, the 80, 90% of patients are going to do really, really well on this type of thyroid hormone and have no issues with it whatsoever. And in fact, they'll flourish on it. And the great thing about natural desiccated thyroid hormone is that it contains T4, the active thyroid hormone T3. It even contains small amounts of T2. T1, technically T0, thyroglobulin, calcitonin, it is a complete product that contains all the aspects and fractions of what would be in a thyroid at any given time. 
It is natural and desiccated, meaning it's dried and it is normally um, a porcine or pig source. And um, most patients, again, do really well on it. Now, why don't most patients get prescribed this? One of the biggest reasons is that uh, there is this belief that it isn't consistent, that um, there are problems with the amount of thyroid hormone that would be present in a given pill, and this is massively overinflated. Um, there's been one, maybe two recalls of armor uh, over the years, and that's a prescription that's been around, in, uh, I don't know, about the 1920s. Um, Nature Throid, um, that's made by RLC Labs, uh, the best of my knowledge, has never had a recall for inconsistency of their batches. Now, Synthroid and others have had several um, um, batch recalls for inc inconsistencies. So we can't necessarily say it's that. The, so the, the, other, the other argument is that the amount of T4 and T3 that is present in natural desiccated thyroid is not physiologic to what is found in the blood. And so what I'm going to do, I'm just going to read a uh, small little excerpt from uh, my first book called The Hormone Zone, where I talked quite a bit about thyroid hormone and um, everything that I'm talking about here, where I got the information from was um, a classic um, textbook, Werner Ingvar's Thyroid. Um, so let me just read that now. And hopefully that will start to make a little bit of sense for everyone. The common argument against the use of desiccated thyroid hormones such as nature thyroid is that the ratio of T4 to T3 of 4 to 1 within the medication is not physiologic for a human being. The opposition explains that humans have serum blood concentration ratios of T4 to T3 of 85.8 micrograms and T4 uh, to about 1.3 micrograms of T3, or 65 to 1. So this illustrates in their minds why T3 and desiccated thyroid hormones should not be used for hypothyroidism, because the ratio of 65 to 1 uh, in the blood is nowhere near to the ratio of about 4 to 1, T4 to T3, that's found in natural desiccated thyroid. Now, there are two facts regarding thyroid hormone physiology that they continue to ignore, even in the journals. One, production rates, production rates of T4 from the thyroid gland are about 130 nanomolars per day per 70 kilograms of body weight. This equates exactly to 101.4 micrograms, and T3 is 48 nanomolars per day per 70 kilograms, which equates to 31.2 micrograms. This is a ratio of T4 to T3 of 3.25 to 1, far closer to the 4 to 1 ratio found in desiccated thyroid hormone. Now the second issue, too, would be the clearance rate of T3 from the blood is approximately 20 times more rapid than T4, which means that T3, the active form of thyroid hormone, will often be lower in the blood than T4 because it's busy doing its job at the cellular level. Again, this is from the Hormone Zone Navigate Metabolism Towards Whole Health Transformation 2011. So that's the first problem, perhaps, that we're not getting enough of it, and that's some of the details, uh, excuse me, that we're on the wrong type, and that's some of the details, perhaps, why we aren't on the right uh, type. Now, number two would be not enough thyroid medication. 
So even if someone gets on natural desiccated thyroid hormone, perhaps they go to uh, an alternative medicine practitioner, some functional medicine doctor that's open to giving them natural desiccated thyroid, perhaps in the form of nature thyroid, why won't they uh, get the benefit from that? Because I've seen that many times. Patients come in and say, well, yes, I've already been on that, but the, you know, it, didn't, it didn't do anything. It didn't make any difference. And that's often because of the second issue. They didn't get enough of that thyroid hormone medication. And so why is that? Now, one of the biggest reasons that we just simplistically say, narrow it down, it would just simply be because of the uh, obsession of focusing on the TSH test, thyroid stimulating hormone blood assay. Uh, we like to say that the TSH stands for too slow to help. So the, the focus is just simply looking at the TSH and regulating that. And honestly, that's maybe one, one and a half a grain, one, one and a half grains, very small amounts, 30 to you know, maybe 90 milligrams of natural desiccated thyroid hormone to regulate the TSH without suppression without making it look like hyperthyroidism on the labs, it's very relatively small end amounts uh, that often don't provide the metabolic relief for that patient to where they have symptomatic relief and, uh, of their, uh, and sign relief as well. So the point would be to bring up the thyroid hormone to the point where signs and symptoms are relieved. And again, if you're focused just on the TSH, you're not going to be able to do that. And then maybe perhaps even after that, we would say, well, we want to look at T4 and T3 and free T3. And those things are important too. And I would say that they're better at assessing the situation than just the TSH. But even then, that doesn't necessarily let us know, is there too much or not enough thyroid hormone present in the system to stimulate the cells? And that's really what metabolism is all about. What's happening at the cellular level? And TSH is not going to necessarily let us know that. But we've got uh, ways that we look at it differently in order to determine what's going on with the metabolism at the cellular level. One way is to look at Waltman sign. Now, Waltman sign, this has been around, oh, about 100 years. And this, would, this is just simply looking at the relaxation phase of a given deep tendon reflex. Classically, it would be the Achilles tendon. But technically, it can be any deep tendon reflex. So the Thyroflex um, is a machine that um, through you know, computer-aided technology, we can see the reflex speed in its relaxation phase to the millisecond. We can measure it to the millisecond. That's classically been the issue with Waltman's sign that uh, after someone gets on thyroid hormone, I've certainly seen this, uh, once somebody gets on even smaller amends, uh, ends of thyroid hormone and then you're looking at the relaxation phase, it, it, it normally corrects pretty quickly and then you can't tell the subtleties of one grain versus one and a half grain versus two grain. You can't see it with the naked eye. But the Thyroflex uh, test has come along and um, remedied that situation. So in this case, you can see she's, uh, she has her um, brachioradialis reflex being affected by the reflex hammer. So the uh, practitioner is working on her uh, brachioradialis reflex uh, that's found right there near the elbow. And it's going to make um, the wrist move. And there's a, uh, a monitor there on the wrist. And that's all connected to the computer. So again, to the millisecond, we'll be able to understand what's going on with that reflex speed 
and then through algorithms we can understand uh, what's going on with the metabolic rate. And so here's an example of a report that would come back uh, from the Thyroflex and normally it's three to five different uh, reflex uh, examples that you would do. You would hit three to five times, at least three you'd need to get a relatively accurate test. And so here on the right-hand side of the slide, we can get this example. I kind of just blew it up to kind of show us what those ranges would be. So the sweet spot of what we're looking for uh, is between about 50 to 100 milliseconds. Between 101 and 135 milliseconds, this is kind of like a, a sort of neutral zone where there could be some suboptimal situations going on that might not necessarily be full-blown hypometabolism or hypothyroidism. In that range of 101 to 135, there we really want to look at nutritional deficiencies. I mean, we want to look at nutritional deficiencies anyway, but perhaps in this situation, it's largely just nutritional deficiencies and it's just slightly off. Now, once we get above 136 milliseconds, we start to enter into the realm of hypometabolism and hypothyroidism. Coming back all the way down on that range, you see less than 50, even less than 40 for sure, we start considering hyperthyroidism. So this is just all about reflex speed, again, in time. So if the reflex speed is slow, we would consider this hypometabolic hypothyroidism. Again, greater than 136 milliseconds. If it's really fast, we hit that brachioradialis reflex and it goes really fast, then we're thinking um, hyperthyroidism, high metabolism, too much thyroid hormone. So this can be used diagnostically and it also definitely can be used um, from a treatment process over time and uh, monitoring the situation and understanding what's going on with their metabolism and what is perhaps the best fine-tuned dose of thyroid hormone for that patient. So um, one of the other ways to go about doing this, aside from just simply looking at the uh, Thyroflex, which is about 98% accurate, um, the algorithms that they used and the statistics and research they're using is based off of the classic indirect telemetry, which is um, what we're talking about here in this slide. So this is also looking at resting metabolic rate. We're measuring it in, in, in the more classic way using indirect telemetry. We use a review machine by CORE. And this is measuring oxygen consumption. And the machine can recognize that as well as the amount of carbon dioxide coming out as the patient is relaxed and breathing through um, the tube. So um, it's, it's pretty cool how it works. Um, and the patient just has to be very relaxed. We get them very relaxed prior. We get them regulated in a room um, and relaxed and temperature regulated. And then we go through with the process of, of testing. There has there's certain restrictions, fasting, no smoking, alcohol, things like that prior to the test. And it can really provide a very accurate understanding of what's going on with metabolic rate. Of course, it can let us know what's going on with calorie count as well. But it's been long known that T3 increases mitochondrial oxygen consumption. We've just known this uh, for years. It just stimulates the mitochondria in a very special way. So whenever we're talking about mitochondrial rehabilitation or we're talking about working on the mitochondria in one way or another, uh, thyroid hormone affects it uh, really second to none. 
Um, and so we really want to consider that when we're talking about mitochondrial disease or dysfunction. And certainly we want to talk about when we're thinking about hypometabolism and low thyroid, they're all, they're just very much interrelated. So here's an example of um, one of the uh, readouts, the printouts that would come um, with that resting metabolic rate test. So you can see here at the top, uh, it's talking about calorie uh, resting energy expenditure. Um, they do a decent calculation for lifestyle calories and then uh, beyond that, again, it's an estimation uh, for exercise. So those are variant, of course. The resting energy expenditure is going to be based definitely on the on what the machine calculated with the oxygen consumption, but exercise and lifestyle would be a, a, an estimate um, based on uh, other portions of the algorithm. But the thing that we look at probably the most is the um, resting metabolic rate there at the bottom um, that's circled in red. So normal would be the zero point, um, and fast or slow is you know plus or minus to to zero. And our optimal range is about a plus or minus 5%, at least plus or minus 10. Um, in this particular example, it's showing fast. Um, but uh, that's what we're looking for. So if somebody comes in and they have a suboptimal metabolism and uh, they have many signs and symptoms that are presenting as low thyroid or high thyroid, but let's say the more common low thyroid, if it's low on the resting metabolic rate, and they have all of these signs and symptoms, then we strongly consider a trial of thyroid hormone and look for improvement clinically as well as look for improvement with the resting metabolic rate. Um, it's really not that complicated, um, but I think um, it's been made very complicated by uh, the TSH test and just looking at blood tests as being able to dictate to us clinically what's going on with their body. It suggests towards it, those labs suggest towards it, doesn't necessarily let us know. Even this test still is suggesting. I just believe that it's uh, a little more accurate than just simply looking at labs. Thank you for listening to this presentation. All past conference presentations can be found on our website, www.ldnresearchtrust.org. Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, my name is Dr. John Robinson, and this is a recording for the LDN Research Trust and the 27 conference, 2017 conference. Uh, my talk today is on thyroid disease, optimizing metabolism through comprehensive hormonal treatment. Uh, again, I'm Dr. John Robinson from the Hormone Zone. I'm a naturopathic physician, and I practice in Scottsdale, Arizona. So this particular talk will focus on thyroid disease and specifically through the lens of optimizing metabolism um, and looking at uh, the idea of thyroid hormone uh, influences on the body as it relates to metabolism and vice versa and then how we can take that whole idea and put it together as a comprehensive approach towards endocrinology and other hormone systems. Let's talk a little bit about LDN. Um, and this is a slide from the 15-minute presentation um, that will be given at the LDN conference uh, this year. And this is what we've done internally. We have uh, been tracking 
and uh, observational internal data on LDN thyroid antibodies for about the past two years, you know, the best we could to, in our busy practice. And we focused on Hashimoto's. And so what this is showing, um, we, we collected data uh, on 39 patients who were just doing LDN, as well as certainly other things with their therapy. Um, but we separated between LDN patients and, and LDN patients who were also doing some form of gut repair. Um, that means that we found some form of uh, issue with food allergies, and then we added in um, treatment for that. So you can see here, it's pretty significant. Um, patients on the LDN, uh, just in and of itself, again, along with thyroid hormone, other things they would be doing, hormone replacement, etc. But just with the LDN, without doing anything extra significantly with their diet or healing the gut in any direct way, those patients had a very significant decrease uh, in their anti-TPO and anti-TG. And that's something that, you know, very often doctors will, you know, from a conventional standpoint will say, you just can't, you can't decrease that. There, there's nothing you can really do about it. And it's just not true. And I'm sure that many of us uh, watching this understand that there is something you can do. And if you are watching this and you don't think that there was anything you, you could do, you can. Um, and I believe LDN is one of those things that can help to lower it. It is very immune modulating and has this capacity to really work on um, the thyroid. And uh, my goal is to have us all sort of um, look into this more deeply and understand this even more so. This is a very small sample size even here what we have. I, I look forward to adding to this data for myself internally, but I would hope that others would do even more with this um, to show that LDN has that ability to really regulate the immune system and bring down um, antibodies uh, in, in Hashimoto's. So here's the uh, gut repair protocol that we tend to use. And this is really important as we're talking about thyroid and sort of comprehension. Um, we want to look at the gut. We want to, in, in naturopathic medicine, we say heal the gut and the rest will follow. And so this is what we tend, what we did certainly with what I just presented with that data, but this is what we generally do in our, in our clinic. Um, this is our gut repair protocol. We start off with screening for 154 different foods in terms of IgG reactivity. We'll also look at gluten and wheat reactivity with a separate test. And then once we find what things they are reactive to or not, they just simply avoid those foods. Along with that, part of the protocol would be to give them a gut cocktail that's described here. And they would mix all this together, the glutamine, fructooligosaccharides, acacia senegal, N-acetyl-D-closamine, slippery elm, aloe vera juice. They put that all together um, in a little bit of water or juice of their choice and drink that twice a day. It's extremely soothing. The high-potency probiotic, we start off with 300 billion uh, CFUs daily for 10 days. That's so like a loading dose, then 100 billion for a couple of months after that, and then to a maintenance dose of about 30 billion. And then finally, they'll use a dual phase digestive enzyme formula, one or two uh, pills with each meal as needed. Sometimes it's just with a heavy meal, maybe they'll do it for all three meals or whatever it is that they find benefit from with that, but at least with a heavy meal a day. And they do all this for three months. And again, we found this to be extremely um, effective. 
So again, we want to look at this as a comprehensive approach to thyroid hormone treatment. Um, first of all, we always want to look at uh, the cause. In naturopathic medicine, one of our tenets is tole causum, or treat the cause. I believe that that cause very often is um, autoimmunity. And if we can work on the immune system and getting that regulated and perhaps using LDN and other measures, um, we can actually treat the cause and take away a lot of the burden on that patient as far as their metabolism is concerned and as far as the whole reason is why they have the low thyroid in the first place. And then part of that, of course, is looking at the entire gut, looking even at detoxification. We do a lot of uh, IV therapy as well and a lot of diet counseling. And then, of course, balancing out the endocrine system. You know, the endocrine system is really elegant. We, we've developed an endocrine system in the womb before we ever even developed a nervous system. And so we've had hormones around us since uh, minute one. And if we can balance that out for patients, um, I really believe that um, many things get better, including what's going on with the immune system. And then, of course, this metabolic rate, bringing back to this idea that we want to focus on metabolism when we're looking at uh, comprehension uh, for thyroid hormone management for patients. So let's move on to adrenals, um, those small little glands that sit on top of the kidneys that secrete adrenaline or epinephrine, norepinephrine, and obviously extremely important for the stress response. And unfortunately, uh, in the midst of our Society, we often have a lot of uh, stress that leads to all kinds of things. And what we like to coin really more as adrenal dysfunction. We often hear the, uh, the uh, term coined as adrenal fatigue. And sometimes it is fatigued out. Uh, but it very often is, and maybe even more often than full fatigue, it's in a, some form of dysfunction, not secreting the hormone when it should. So we prefer that term, but it does present in all kinds of ways. Now, one of the big things is, of course, fatigue, uh, just feeling wired and tired, just kind of out of it. But certainly the immune system is going to be affected. You, uh, you, your adrenals are responsible for also balancing out the immune system. Many of the hormones coming from the adrenals are going to balance out the immune system. But as the adrenals are going into the dysfunction, it presents with all these things, cravings and just you know, feeling hopeless, helpless and defeated. I like this slide because it just kind of quickly shows us clinically what you would see um, with adrenal burnout, let's say adrenal dysfunction. And it kind of starts from left and kind of tends to move towards the right. So initially, the sort of wired for sound uh, super diva um, will present with high cortisol. The adrenals are overproducing. Um, neurotransmitters are also elevated. And we'll talk about that in a second. And then it can move into kind of one of the two in the middle, uh, wired and tired, that's presenting either as allergic and effect, infected or wired and tired, but you're inflamed and in pain. And there can be a combination of those two as well. But that's either high cortisol, low neurotransmitters, or low cortisol, high neurotransmitters. And when you know that based on testing, you can kind of understand a little bit more of what's going on with that patient. And then finally, just plain tired. These, these people are, this would be what we would definitely coin as adrenal fatigue. Um, sometimes this can even go into the full-blown uh, condition called Addison's disease. 
So this would be a critical situation. Now, cortisol being the main hormone coming out of the adrenal glands um, is something we really look at very closely as it's incredibly important for energy, again, immune regulation, these things that we were already talking about, cortisol being really one of the main hormones involved with all of that. So we test this through salivary testing. And what this is showing us here is our normal circadian rhythm of cortisol. In the morning, you can see here that uh, it should be nice and high. This helps you to get out of bed. This gives you a surge of energy to, so you can get going with your day. Cortisol then should naturally start to come down. Maybe a little bit of bump in the late afternoon, but for the most part, it continues to trend down. By the time 10 p.m. hits, it should be nice and low. And when it's low, it's easier to get to sleep and stay asleep. And then throughout the night, by 3, 4 a.m., it's starting to rise again, and the cycle repeats. So what we can do is a, salivary, a simple salivary test to be able to understand what's going on with this circadian rhythm and see where uh, a certain patient's uh, situation is with their cortisol. So here's an example of that salivary test on the bottom of this slide. Um, in this particular case, this patient had low cortisol first thing in the morning. You can see where the sort of the normal range would be and where their results were. And they were a little bit high at night. This is extremely common. Many times the, um, the amount of adrenal cortisol hormone is, is, is plenty of it, um, but it's just not being secreted when it should be. So it's perhaps low in the morning, but high at night, and then you know normal throughout the middle of the day, and then overall the amount is, is, is still normal what it's being secreted. It's just not being secreted when it should be. So there's ways to you know work with that. Here on the top of the slide, it's showing uh, the classic neurotransmitters that we will look at um, when we're talking about adrenal function. So we look at this from a neuroendocrine standpoint um, by looking at these neurotransmitters as well. And this can be extremely helpful. And it's very important to kind of what we're talking about here in this, um, in this presentation. So thyroid hormone itself is responsible for stimulating the release and regulation of these neurotransmitters. So there's this effect of thyroid hormone on this. So here's an example of how thyroid is affecting adrenal function. So serotonin, this is optimized when thyroid hormone is optimized for sure. There's ample evidence showing that thyroid hormone affects the serotonin system in the brain. Even patients on SSRIs, optimal thyroid function is likely needed to potentiate the effects of the SSRIs. And epinephrine, as another example, this is responsible for converting T4 to T3 in the brain. But if you have excessive epinephrine, this will lower T3 production and increase reverse T3, which is a sort of an inert version of T3. So balance is always the key. So I'd, like a, I'd like to take a quick moment to talk about hydrocortisone. So hydrocortisone is um, essentially cortisol. It's a bioidentical version of cortisol. It is a steroid, and so we often hear the word steroid, and we think, oh, that's going to be really bad for us, and obviously it definitely can be in excessive amounts. But through the work of Jeffries and, and, and others, uh, and certainly within the functional medicine world, we do understand that 
physiologic doses of hydrocortisone is very different from high amounts of synthetic versions of cortisol, such as prednisone. And there's a huge difference in terms of what it can do for the body from, you know, helping with things like adrenal dysfunction and certainly huge differences in terms of the side effects. So the dosing is in this range of somewhere between, you know, 5 to 30, maybe even 40 milligrams a day. Um, physiologic amounts, we secrete naturally about 20, maybe upwards of 40 milligrams of cortisol daily. So we can replace within those ranges and they become physiologic. And it truly can change a patient's life. Um, I've seen it so many times. When we do a salivary test and we can see other clinical signs and symptoms of low suboptimal cortisol production, and we replace that with hydrocortisone uh, for you know a finite amount of time, sometimes as little as three, maybe 12 months, it just can make such an impact on that patient to allow them to get well, um, to get them out of bed, uh, to get moving uh, again with life. Uh, so it really can be amazingly effective. And we do look at it as a finite medication nonetheless. Uh, and go out of our way to uh, wean them off of it when it's time. But even with that, we don't rush it. We do it when it's appropriate. So again, adrenals and thyroid are affecting one another. Uh, I'll give a couple more examples of this, uh, and again, and how we're looking at this comprehensively. So two things I think that are really important. Cortisol and uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine, I had said earlier, it, it does increase reverse T3. So T3 being the main form of thyroid hormone, reverse T3 being a mirror image of that molecule that is responsible really for lowering metabolic rate. Where T3 is increasing it, reverse T3 is lowering it. So essentially stress lowers metabolic rate. Stress creating the cortisol, the epinephrine, the norepinephrine, that adrenaline, and that increases the reverse T3 that again decreases the metabolic rate. Another thing is that cortisol decreases TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone. Now, this does two things in and of itself. One, when you decrease that TSH, um, this lowers overall thyroid production, thyroid hormone production. And two, it potentially masks a suboptimal thyroid condition and low metabolism if the diagnosing physician relies solely upon the TSH. So a TSH can look very normal. Um, but that's just because the patient is under so much stress. They've got excessive cortisol. That's just masking what would otherwise have been perhaps a high TSH that makes it look like low thyroid. So again, when we're looking at adrenal repair, we're looking at it comprehensively. There's multiple things that we're looking at. Um, and, and this is kind of how we kind of go about it. First of all, we want to look at, at balancing out the blood sugar level. And I think that that's probably one of the key things to help getting someone well. It's also one of the key things that helps us understand uh, if somebody has an adrenal issue in the first place, what's going on with their blood sugar. And we do this with protein, and certainly we do this with high fat. Um, I am a uh, large proponent of the Weston A. Price Foundation, and this idea of an ancestral diet coming back to our roots of um, really higher fat, higher quality animal fat, and uh, moderate amounts of protein, 
and fruits and vegetables, particularly vegetables that would be fermented. And this is again ancestral how our um, ancestors would eat, and how and we've got about forty-three different um, ancestral type of cultures that we can study today, and they all eat in this similar way. And this is certainly what Weston Price uh, figured out in his uh, uh, multi-continent journey uh, in the early 1900s. So I'm bringing that up about the fat as well, because I tend to look at patients as athletes, whether they're actual athletes or not. I work with athletes, but I really feel like almost all my patients in one way or another are athletes, either they're the super mom or they're the corporate CEO, or there's you know, someone who's just trying to really perform. And they're coming to me because they want to continue to perform. And it's easy to say, take a vacation, but that's not always what they can do. Of course, we say, let's try to mitigate uh, your stress, but it's not always possible just by saying, just stop doing that. So we want to allow patients to be able to function. But what these patients do that are trying to super perform, just like often what an athlete will do is, athletes don't really overtrain. We hear about overtraining. It's, uh, it's just something that doesn't really happen that often, but what they do do is they undernourish themselves. And it's that undernourishment, it's that lack of recovery through nutrition that leads them into overtraining as athletes or leads them into this adrenal dysfunction, this lack of recovery when they're trying to super perform in their everyday lives. So we promote this idea of getting back to just simply eating. People are just, they're skipping meals or they're eating a lot of refined carbohydrates and they're just not repairing themselves. Carbohydrates, we view this as energy. Protein is for repair, but fat is for recovery. And adrenal repair is all about recovery. And there's other botanical things that we do along with all of this. And it again, it's a comprehensive approach by looking at all hormones. Thank you for listening to this presentation. All past conference presentations can be found on our website, www.ldnresearchtrust.org. Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, my name is Dr. John Robinson, and this is a recording for the LDN Research Trust and the 27 conference, 2017 conference. Uh, my talk today is on thyroid disease, optimizing metabolism through comprehensive hormonal treatment. Uh, again, I'm Dr. John Robinson from the Hormone Zone. I'm a naturopathic physician and I practice in Scottsdale, Arizona. So this particular talk will focus on thyroid disease and specifically through the lens of optimizing metabolism um, and looking at uh, the idea of thyroid hormone uh, influences on the body as it relates to metabolism and vice versa, and then how we can take that whole idea and put it together as a comprehensive approach towards endocrinology and other hormone systems. Let's move on to growth hormone. This is certainly about longevity, regeneration, um, anti-aging or age management, what I think is a better term, but anti-aging is certainly uh, the term that's used. Um, this is about uh, expansion within that. Now, IGF-1 is the main hormone that we're often considering when it comes to growth hormone. Um, it is a storage form, so to speak, 
of uh, actual growth hormone. So growth hormone comes out of the pituitary gland um, and through the liver it will be converted into uh, IGF-1 and it's IGF-1 that is also stimulating muscle, bone growth, development, um, all kinds of things with you know, neurological implications and recovery. And that's the thing about growth hormone. Uh, yes, it helps with muscle and bone, uh, but it certainly helps with sleep and recovery. We'll talk about that in a minute. But back to the uh, to the IGF one. This, you know, I, I like these these charts here uh, that show really when things start to become critical for most people, and it's right around fifty. And we talk about that a lot in our practice, where we see whether it's estrogen or testosterone or growth hormone or DHEA, things become the most critical very often, right around this 50 age uh, mark. Um, so that tends to be a, a large demographic for us of who we see, because that's where you tend to start really manifesting a lot of uh, these symptoms. Um, so we're looking to get the IGF-1 levels up uh, around 300 or more for men. Uh, 200, 220 or so for women. We also look at IGF binding protein 3. Um, our therapeutic goal for that's uh, less than 3,000, but really uh, we look at the IGF 1 to the IGF binding protein 3 as a ratio, and we're looking for about a 1 to 10 to 1 to 14 on that. But the main goal really is to optimize the IGF 1 levels, and there are ways to do it. So here's some of those benefits I was already kind of alluding to. Yes, it definitely helps with muscle and bone. That would be the kind of classic understanding, linear uh, bone growth, etc. It's giving us energy. It's helping with uh, memory and focus. Some patients even report vision uh, improvements. It can, it's extremely calming. Um, helps with your immune system, skin, body uh, changes, particularly visceral fat. But one of the biggest things that I think people benefit from and will notice relatively quickly is their sleep improves. And this is part of that idea of recovery. So how does growth hormone affect thyroid, thyroid uh, hormone affect growth hormone? There's many ways I'll, I'll review some. Growth hormone controls thyroid production for sure, uh, particularly in hyperthyroidism. Growth hormone increases 5' prime deiodinase, which increases that T4 to T3 conversion. And growth hormone lowers reverse T3. That's probably through a mechanism of, of modulating cortisol. But again, that's lowering reverse T3. If you lower reverse T3, you're capable of having more stimulation through what T3 you do, regular T3 you do have in your system. So therefore, metabolism is affected positively. And, of course, thyroid uh, stimulates the pituitary to increase growth hormone. Remember, thyroid hormone affects every single cell in your body, head to toe, inside and out. Um, so that would include the, uh, the cells within the pituitary to secrete growth hormone. So how can we go about affecting uh, growth hormone naturally? Um, there's many ways. Um, and let me just review peptide therapy here. I think this is a very exciting therapy. Uh, peptides, uh, referring to a small amino acid chain of less than normally about 70 amino acids, um, so very small proteins, so to speak. Um, and it's been around, this peptide therapy has been around since the 90s, uh, perhaps, well, maybe even technically even further back than that, but it really had a beginning heyday in about the 90s, and now, maybe even the past five years, we're starting to see more and more of an understanding of it. Um, and it's exciting because the 
Um, side effects in general tend to be a lot lower than other medications. Um, and when it comes to natural growth hormone stimulation, it really is a very excellent way to go about stimulating growth hormone because it does so uh, indirectly. It's not giving exogenous growth hormone, uh, meaning growth hormone from the outside, putting it in, that tends to come equipped with more potential side effects that can be managed, but uh, they, they have more side effects with actual growth hormone uh, replacement. But with this, this is just telling the pituitary to make more growth hormone. So CJC1295 and ipamorelin, uh, two very excellent um, peptides that will help to stimulate the um, production of growth hormone at the pituitary level. But tesamorelin, this is the sort of Cadillac version of um, a peptide therapy for growth hormone, and it's excellent research uh, behind it. Now, bremelanotide, um, also very exciting uh, and something that's very useful for us in our practice. Uh, we focus a lot on sexual health and optimization for libido, and bremelanotide affects the um, melanocortin receptors in the brain, uh, M3 a little bit, mostly M4, and this stimulates and begins that process of stimulating libido and sexual arousal, and it does it very effectively. Uh, currently, bremelanotide is in phase three clinical trials, um, and it's you know, soon to be fully FDA approved and, um, for the use of sexual uh, arousal dysfunction in women um, as well as men. So uh, it's, it's pretty effective and it's exciting to be able to use it. Now, one, a couple more things here about the peptide therapy. SARMs or selective androgen receptor modulators also very exciting options here um, when you have a patient that has had prostate cancer but they're looking for androgenic benefits such as uh, helping with libido, certainly helping with muscle mass, a response to uh, exercise, maintaining bone, preventing osteoporosis through aging. A SARM might be that option because testosterone often isn't for that patient who's had prostate cancer. Um, so the great thing about a SARM is it does not aromatize into estrogen. A SARM also does not convert into DHT. And it's both the DHT and the estrogen, that particular estradiol, that we would be concerned about in prostate cancer and stimulating uh, prostatic growth. So SARM... Um, has the potential uh, to really be a great alternative for those who have that issue. And then thymosins, this is uh, also very, very exciting. I think also very pertinent to the LDN conference here and that we're focusing very often on immune, immunity and the immune system and autoimmunity. And thymosins prove to also be this very excellent peptide that uh, can help with overall immune modulation, and that's really what, th there's two different thymusins, one's thymusin A1 and the other one's thymusin B4. Thymusin A1 has immune modulating effects, the thymusin B4, uh, this is used in wound healing, tissue regeneration, also an anti-inflammatory, great research uh, behind both of these. Um, there's over 30 countries right now that are util utilizing thymusin B4 for um, tuberculosis and other infectious diseases. So let's move on to insulin and digestion. 
and how perhaps this might be affecting what's going on with the thyroid and vice versa. So we look at insulin as a, as a hormone um, issue. And this all normally comes from you know, the carbohydrate diet issue that's causing excessive insulin that is leading into diabetes. As you can see in this graphic, we've got one out of four people don't even know that they have diabetes, even though we've got about 30 million people floating around with it. But where we tend to see most of the issue is in pre-diabetes, and that's where I think the focus uh, really needs to be. I mean, one, we, we see 86 million people. There's more people walking around with pre-diabetes, and that, this is a little bit more of a prevention uh, demographic as well. If we can get these people, then we're um, focusing on a demographic of prevention before they get to full-blown diabetes. So again, 86 million people in the United States with pre-diabetes, but 9 out of 10 don't know they have it. And I think in part why 9 out of 10 don't know they have it. One is because uh, from a conventional standpoint, labs are looked at. So you have to be really broken before they decide to do anything. Um, also, uh, I think people are walking around with a level of obesity um, that is becoming common that is making it seem normal. But common doesn't mean normal. But certainly more and more people are overweight, and that's just becoming part of the norm. So I think we don't necessarily see that as a medical issue. And uh, I think we all know that it is. So part of the metabolic syndrome, I, I left this slide in here just to kind of remind us of what that all means. Part of the metabolic syndrome would include type 2 diabetes. And these classic things, of course, hypertension, high blood pressure, you know, heart disease, uh, fatty liver. But the two things that I think go misunderstood or, or just not talked about enough are the fact that with metabolic syndrome, with excessive amounts of, of insulin, and particularly sugar or glucose, um, we see increased risk for dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and it just feeds cancer. Um, there was studies that were done on the range of 100 to 109, um, this often no man's land that clinically people don't do anything with. Uh, we want to see glucose under 100 generally, um, and but when it gets 101, 102, you know, was there an issue? Again, most of the time doctors don't do anything until it gets above 110, until they start to consider insulin resistance even at 110. And so with that range of this 100 to roughly 110, there's been studies to show that it increases the risk for dementia, uh, Alzheimer's, and cancer. Um, so we definitely want to look at uh, excessive sugar and start working on that before it gets uh, really bad. And so with insulin affecting thyroid, thyroid uh, affecting insulin and digestion, a couple quick examples. Thyroid hormone improves insulin sensitivity. So part of insulin resistance is a, a lack of thyroid hormone very often. Um, and excessive insulin, that actually blocks the conversion of T4 to T3, just being a couple quick examples. But again, we want to look at things comprehensively. So one of the tools that we use um, to help patients with um, not just insulin resistance, but even mitochondrial disorders um, would be the ketogenic uh, diet or maybe even looking at this as a ketogenic lifestyle. And for some patients, if it is really beneficial, they can make it a lifestyle. So the ketogenic diet 
just referring to uh, 75% fat, 20% protein, 5% carbs. I always like to uh, remind everyone that the ketogenic diet is not a high-protein diet. It is a high-fat diet. The fat is the key for the success of this diet uh, to get the, the physiology to shift from being a glucose burner into being a fat burner. The fat content of the diet is really key. And if, in fact, if the protein content is too high, it's very difficult to get into ketosis. So um, that's the basic ratios. But what does the ketogenic diet uh, do? Um, it does a lot. And this is all very exciting, uh, I think. And, and for our patients, certainly, uh, they want to lose weight. And it, and it can help you with that. Um, it's very effective uh, with that when someone does it correctly. And if they're being guided correctly through it, and if they are you know, focusing on uh, comprehensive care and they're focusing on hormone replacement therapy that's comprehensive, it can be amazingly effective. But there's a lot more things that will, uh, someone will benefit from. Chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, cancer, uh, mitochondrial disease, hormone balances in general, uh, certainly epilepsy. And with epilepsy, you know, back in the 19... 10s or so, 19 early, somewhere in the 1910s, uh, the Mayo Clinic, was they were doing studies on children with epilepsy, and they found that if they fasted them, that they would uh, have less seizures. And that was exciting, but it also wasn't very practical because you couldn't continue to fast a child. You had to make sure that they were eating. But it was then in the 1920s that they found, as a little bit of time went on, and they readdressed it, if they gave that child a um, ketogenic diet, it would help with the epilepsy. But part of that was to understand that the ketogenic diet is almost, in a way, like fasting. And we also know that certain fasting diets can also potentially be helpful for cancer. Again, we're starving the cancer of the, of the sugar but you can do the same thing with the ketogenic diet and still maintain calories. So again, with fibromyalgia, I wanted to mention that uh, briefly, that fibromyalgia and low thyroid are almost virtually the same thing. They have their nuances, of course, but essentially they present uh, as a hypometabolic uh, mitochondrial thyroid issue, uh, hormone issue. So the ketogenic diet has this huge potential. Oh, and the Charlie Foundation, by the way, um, this, you know, the ketogenic diet came back into vogue back in the 1990s when a mother was trying to help her child who was having uh, uncontrolled seizures. And uh, she went into the literature and found a lot of that information from the Mayo Clinic from the 1920s and decided to put him on a ketogenic diet, and it, and it worked. And then they started the Charlie Foundation. Uh, and Charlie is now you know, an adult. Thank you for listening to this presentation. All past conference presentations can be found on our website, www.ldnresearchtrust.org. Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, my name is Dr. John Robinson, and this is a recording for the LDN Research Trust and the 27 conference, 2017 conference. Uh, my talk today is on thyroid disease, optimizing metabolism through comprehensive hormonal treatment. Uh, again, I'm Dr. John Robinson from the Hormone Zone 
I'm a naturopathic physician and I practice in Scottsdale, Arizona. So this particular talk will focus on thyroid disease and specifically through the lens of optimizing metabolism um, and looking at uh, the idea of thyroid hormone uh, influences on the body as it relates to metabolism and vice versa and then how we can take that whole idea and put it together as a comprehensive approach towards endocrinology and other hormone systems. So moving on, sex hormones, uh, this idea of sexual energy and sexuality, certainly the issues of menopause, uh, perimenopause, low testosterone for men. So starting uh, with the ladies, uh, sex hormones are obviously incredibly pivotal and has a lot to do with uh, sexuality, opening up to sexual energy, creativity, owning your own personal power. Sex hormones, estrogen and testosterone have a lot to do with being optimistic, getting motivated to do things. And when these things go away, as we go into perimenopause and menopause, hot flashes, night sweats, sleeping difficulties, vaginal dryness, eye dryness, skin dryness, you know, period issues, menstruation issues, loss of memory, certainly loss of libido, incontinence, and the classic triad of osteoporosis, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. And so when we're working with hormones, we're working with disease prevention, or at least mitigation. Um, so I think that's one of the, the great things about hormone replacement therapy, that we're looking at this from a longevity standpoint and a disease prevention standpoint. Women have testosterone. Now, I'm sure many of us watching this understand that, but maybe some of us don't. And I like to emphasize this, that, that women do have testosterone. They have it uh, really for essentially the same reasons men have it. And it has the same basic effects in a woman's body as it does for as it does a man. In fact, women have more testosterone floating around in their blood than they even do estrogen. Estrogen has a large impact, of course, and... Women have more estrogen than men, but technically women have more testosterone and androgens floating around in their system. So it's helping with libido and muscle and response to exercise and memory and focus, anxiety, depression, mood swings, irritability, certainly incontinence. Um, it has a lot to do with balancing out your immune system. And so when I'm working with women, testosterone really can be um, a game changer and they very much appreciate getting the replacement of that in a very effective way. So let's move on to, to guys. And men want testosterone and the power of their sex hormone certainly comes through their, you know, mastering their own sexual energy, helping them to become assertive, um, self-reliant. Um, this is this idea of the social implications of testosterone and what this has to do for men, uh, creating a sense of self-reliance and assertiveness so they can get things done, helping them to become optimistic and motivated. So when all of that starts to go away, and this will slide right after this, we'll talk about when that happens, but low energy, again, libido, erectile dysfunction, mood swings, um, irritability, and also this classic triad of osteoporosis, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. These three diseases are at a higher risk for the aging male. And there's plenty of research to show that as we enhanced testosterone, we can actually mitigate those diseases, if not reverse them. So when does testosterone start to decline? Um, 
there it is at 50 again. So it's just about 50 years old where it becomes more clinically relevant to a man. It's starting to decline uh, pretty regularly after even the age of 20 or 30, but it becomes clinically significant very often at 50. Now, I've been doing this for 11 years. I, I see people younger and younger coming in, so it's not that we don't have patients in their 20s suffering from low testosterone. We certainly do, but 50 tends to be this really key uh, time frame. And we're looking for an optimal range. Uh, optimization, again, is the key. And we're looking for an optimal range for testosterone for men around 700 to 1100 nanograms per deciliter. So um, testosterone decline, uh, when is this, this happening? Again, I was just said that it's about 1% annually after the age of 2030. Some research says 40. And uh, that's where it kind of begins. But there has been this sort of global decline of testosterone. We're starting to see that. Finland, uh, as one example, uh, had uh, a study showing that there's a decline between age match controls of 25 to 29 year olds to 70 to 74 year olds. They have lower testosterone. Again, age matched. Um, in Denmark, free testosterone is lower. We're seeing some evidence of that. It's a big study by Travis and Dunn, 22% decline of testosterone from 1989 to 2004. So we're really seeing this generational decline in male testosterone. And we've got data now going back about three generations. So we're, we're able to see now that there's a generational decline. It's not just simply, yes, yes, we do know that we're, there's a decline as we age, that would be uh, considered normal uh, to have some level of decline, but we're seeing an overall decline from age match controls through generations. And also, we're definitely seeing an issue with sperm. Um, and this is a more of a, or at least <laughs> perhaps recently, it was a very controversial concept uh, because there's, for all the research that's been out about it, um, there is... Uh, controversial research to come out and say, no, that's not what we're actually seeing. But let's go through some of what uh, uh, I've seen here and what I've kind of come across. 1.9% annual decline in sperm density. This just means that, generally speaking, we do see about a 2% annual decline in the aging male. But we are seeing some overall generational decline as well. Here's a Denmark study from 1977 to 95. We're seeing a decreased quality morphology changing. United Kingdom, they've uh, got a decline here from 98 to 78 uh, million from 51 to 1973. An Italian uh, study showing a 30% uh, decrease in concentration. India, 50% in, infertility rate, very high. And in, U, in the U.S., we've, these studies that came out in the 90s um, showing this roughly 50% decline in sperm density from 1938 to 1990. So that's really when all of it started, when they really started looking at all this, was when this large landmark studies, these studies came out. But despite all the controversy that came from that, there was another large study that came out um, in, uh, it was a French study, and they found there was definitely um, a decline. But there was still doubt. Now, these slides that I, these past couple slides I just showed you here was from a, a conference I went to and spoke at. It was an international congress on naturopathic medicine in London back in July, and I presented on this in, in, in early July, uh, based on you know just my 
reading of the literature and presenting on what I saw about testosterone and sperm, including this controversy about the sperm. Um, and it was only just a few weeks after that another study came out, and that study is this one. And it was a big one. Um, this was uh, looking at sperm from North America, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. It was a study that came out of Jerusalem and uh, really, really elegant regression analysis. It was a meta-analysis using regression uh, statistics. Uh, really great stuff beyond me. Uh, really elegant what they did. And they saw this decline. And they saw this decline. What's interesting about this, aside from just seeing the uh, a decline from it was 1970 to 2011. Aside from seeing that, if they just looked at, just took out a chunk of time, they saw no matter what that there was still the decline. Even if they they wanted to see, well, is it slowing down? And so they just looked at time is like closer to us, maybe the past five or ten years, and they still found no, it's all the decline is happening. It's not slowing down in any way. So in this slide here, this is just talking about this idea of testosterone. It's as testosterone goes down in men, what are some of the increased disease risks that we start to see? And this, uh, for women as well, and women have about one-tenth of the amount of testosterone as men do. So you can sort of see the ranges as it just kind of all goes down, increasing the risk ultimately down to you know erectile dysfunction, complete loss of lib libido, and you're collecting all these diseases, so to speak, in terms of increased risk anyway. Uh, you're increasing those risks as the levels continue to decline. So again, it's all about optimization so we can mitigate those disease risks. So how sex hormones affect thyroid, how thyroid affects sex hormone. A few examples. Estrogen, estradiol particularly, increases thyroid binding globulin. Now, that would potentially lower the active form of thyroid hormone, but testosterone decreases thyroid binding globulin. So when you're working with both estrogen and testosterone, you're balancing out uh, the effect of either. Estradiol lowers TSH. It also increases T4 and T3. It may or may not be good in certain situations, but for the most part, good. T3 increases the sensitivity of luteinizing hormone, or LH. Uh, low thyroid increases the risk of ovarian cysts and uh, enlargement as well. So this is also in part due to a lack of uh, iodine. So this is how these two are working together. Now, it is important to focus on this difference between bioidentical hormones and synthetic hormones. Um, and it doesn't mean that all synthetic hormones are horrible, uh, but generally speaking, um, it does, and we do our best to work with a natural bioidentical hormone when we can. I like to use the hand analogy. Um, what this is just showing us, I would say that you know, if estrogen is, we assume it's the shape here of, 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 a, of a hand. I always want to give the same bioidentical shape. I want to match that up with a hand that looks just like it. Um, a synthetic version has extra fingers on it, and it is all those extra fingers and that different shape that can increase the risk uh, for disease. Now, if we assume and agree that a bioidentical is the way to go, and that perhaps is the best way to put a hormone into the system, what is uh, the best way to deliver it? And there's many different ways, and there's oral forms, there's creams, gels, patches, uh, injections, and there's also subcutaneous 
pellet therapy. Now this particular slide is showing us uh, hormone levels on one axis and just time on the other. And it's showing this variance of where hormone levels go based on the delivery mechanism being used. And after using uh, many different ways of delivering hormone, I, I have found that in general pellets um, do provide a consistent level um, better really than almost anything. Um, but consistent level doesn't necessarily always mean it's, that's everything and, and you always want to use the delivery mechanism that's going to work best for the patient. But generally speaking, um, after treating thousands of patients with pellets, it really has been an excellent way to go. Um, here's a little bit more about it. So a trocar is used to place these pellets underneath the skin uh, in the adipose tissue. We get consistent levels, highly absorbable, high compliance. I always say set it and forget it. It's kind of there slowly secreting and releasing the hormone over time. It takes me about five minutes to do the procedure and it lasts three to six months. So there's a lot of attractive things about that clinically for a patient and the benefits that they can yield from all of that. Um, again, the consistency is there. We don't have to worry about the hormone not being there because they didn't take a pill or because there was a variance uh, with the way the cream was working or not. It's there pumping out hormone 24-7. But it's not even linear with a pellet. What's great about the pellet is based on cardiovascular demand. If the heart is beating faster and blood flow is passing past that pellet more rapidly, it will dissolve more rapidly. So you'll get more because your heart's beating faster, let's say, because you're exercising. Um, if you're sleeping, your heart beats slower, you'll still get hormone, but you'll get less. So there's always little ebbs and flows of hormone release from pellets, but it's not a huge spike of too much and not enough. And again, after working with pellets for just so many years, um, I had the pleasure of working and studying with Gino Tutera, one of the uh, pioneers of subcutaneous pellet therapy working in an extremely busy practice for about eight years focusing on this therapy it really is a superior way to put hormone into the system um, moving on another way to put in testosterone into the system would be uh, twice weekly subcutaneous hormone injections this is something that works really well for testosterone particularly for men what's great about this um, we have figured out uh, how to use a small insulin needle with a very small syringe um, placed right into the fat. Um, so it's a little bit easier, in fact, maybe a lot easier than an intramuscular injection. It just takes a very short period of time to do. And by doing it twice a week, what we wind up achieving is um, a more consistent level. So one of the downsides of injections is you can get huge super physiologic spikes of hormone immediately following an injection and then inevitable drops down depending on when this next injection is given. And so the patient um, doesn't feel good because they're not getting a consistent flow. So by taking uh, maybe a typical amount you would give in a given week and you split it in half and give it twice weekly, you wind up getting something that's uh, reflective of this uh, graph here. So Again, we're looking for levels to be at least to be above 600, 700, trying to get it up the top end of the range around 1,000 or so. On the first injection, we would get, because it's a smaller amount, 
we don't get that huge spike. And before it ever gets a chance to go down again, you do the second injection and up and down it goes. And so we've done many labs uh, kind of watching the peak and the trough here with the first and second lab. And uh, the variance on average would be plus or minus 150 points on the peak to the trough. And this is fantastic uh, for, uh, for an injection. To have that little of variance in testosterone levels uh, in that amount of time is, is really excellent. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, the average dose is about 50 to 75 milligrams twice weekly. It's about 100, 150, sometimes a little bit lower every once in a while a little bit higher. But the great thing about this, because we are putting it into the fat, that's another reason why it's um, uh, keeping the levels more consistent because it's in fat versus muscle. But the other advantage with that is that it allows us to actually use less hormone. You can get more with it uh, and more effect with a smaller amount. It's really more about consistency and uh, quality than it is quantity. And um, the science of arousal, and I think all of this is extremely important uh, to thyroid hormone and, uh, again, this comprehensive approach. Uh, many patients are going to come in when they're talking about hormone replacement therapy. The two big key things they're talking about is energy and libido. They want to have a little bit more energy and they want to take that energy and use it uh, for sexual activity. But they want to feel like they want to have sex. So we look at sexual arousal on these three levels and we do our best to affect um, these three levels clinically. Now from a brain standpoint, dopamine, uh, melanin, these are hormones uh, that affect the beginning stages of arousal at the hypothalamic level, particularly in the amygdala. Serotonin is actually tends to be an inhibitor uh, at the brain level for um, arousal, one of the reasons why SSRIs often affect libido. And of course we look at the hormone level. Now the classic hormones that we would look at would be testosterone, estradiol, oxytocin. If these are deficient, that will affect arousal. But prolactin, when in excess, can actually decrease what's going on uh, with arousal. So we look at that as well. But I have you know, LDN and thyroid hormone here as well to say that we want to, LDN also has this way of mitigating what's going on with the brain, helping with all kinds of psychiatric issues that in turn can affect uh, libido. And thyroid hormone, if it is deficient and you are exhausted, you're not going to feel like really doing anything. And again, because thyroid hormone affects every cell, including the cells of the amygdala where arousal tends to start, um, it would be important for uh, sexual arousal as well. And then finally, um, actually affecting the tissue level, um, the penis, the vagina, the clitoris. Um, and so there are ways to affect this directly, and we want to consider that for patients. Um, two things that we focus on uh, at our practice is using the O-shot and the P-shot, or the orgasm shot and the priapus shot that utilizes platelet-rich plasma, and we inject this into either the penis or the vagina that it is provides that PRP that is restorative and regenerative to the tissue. So we might be working with hormone really well. We get a great response uh, from that for a patient. Perhaps we're able to balance out dopamine and, and work with some other things to help with the brain side of arousal. But if the tissue isn't there and it's not uh, functioning correctly, then it doesn't matter. So we have to look at it, again, comprehensively. 
and, and a few books here that I would uh, recommend uh, and certainly the references behind what I was saying there. So finally, again, we just come back to this idea of comprehension. Sex hormones, thyroid, insulin, digestion, adrenals, growth hormone. We want to look at the whole thing. We want to see how these hormones dance together. And we want to continue to open our mind to the other ideas behind all of this, like detoxification, that sexuality, our immune balance, how all this affects our behavior, and vice versa, making sure musculoskeletal pain, all of this is, has been worked on the neurological ideas, comprehension, and really looking at mitochondrial function, bringing it all together. And there's even more than what I said here, but this is just sort of that framework, that skeleton of it, and we can always add things into this to continue to improve things for patients. And so that's the end of this uh, presentation. I really want to thank everybody for your attention. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation. All past conference presentations can be found on our website, www.ldnresearchtrust.org.